This is a fan commentary for the 1966 film The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, starring Eli Wallach, Ennio Morricone, and Spain. I am Tisto of Tisto.com, T-Y-S-T-O, and my very special guest uh, on this commentary for the first time is Rob Caravaggio. Hi, Rob. Hi, thank you. Uh, I, I joke a little bit, but uh, holy cow, uh, Eli Wallach has uh, the most screen time, the most lines. I think in, in a lot of ways he is the star of the film along with Spain. Yeah, he's he's the man in this movie. And uh, I don't know anyone who's ever said that he is not their favorite character, that Tuco is not their favorite character in this movie. <laughs> Uh, Clint Eastwood, of course, is back uh, as the man with no name. This is a prequel to the two previous films, uh, A Fistful of Dollars and For a Few Dollars More. What's your relationship with those films? I like them a lot. I I think I mentioned to you uh, before we were recording that the Dollars movies and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly are really the only Leone movies I I like a lot. The other ones I'm kind of, eh. But I I love these movies. I love Clint Eastwood in them. I think they're just delicious, and I adore them. We, I, they are certainly for me not only the Sergio Leone movies, but the spaghetti westerns. I think mm. uh, the, the one of the commentaries on the Blu-ray says that uh, there were like a hundred other westerns made in Spain and Italy uh, this same year, or or very close around that, and uh, so it was just a very popular thing. But when we think of them, man, there, there aren't many more than the Dollars trilogy that uh, that really stand out. No, there's a lot. I mean, I don't know that I've seen very many spaghetti westerns that were not Leone. I've seen a few, you know, but uh, his are the best that I've seen. Uh, We also have Lee Van Cleef rejoining us uh, from the uh, second of the Dollars trilogies, playing a very different kind of character. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. One of his best roles, easily, I would say. Yeah, I mean, we were saying before, I, I don't... I don't we Don't say that fit. we were saying before. <laughs> oh, well, you know. <laughs> oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> we, we couldn't we couldn't think of anything that he we couldn't think of very many things that he'd done. High noon, I think we mentioned. But um, he he he's fantastic. I, I, I sort of I love that kind of acting that sort of Steve McQueen kind of uh, when it's done very well by someone that sort of stoicism. I, I think it's and it's perfect for a Western, I think. To be sure, yeah. I, I wish that we had seen Van Cleef in some more uh, better films. Uh, he certainly did a, a ton of them, but mm-hmm. uh, for the most part, uh, you know, not really great movies. But uh, we can talk about that a little bit uh, as we get into it. Sure. Um, and it, this was written by Luciano Vincenzoni and uh, along with Sergio Leone, of course. Uh, I think a bunch of other people worked on the screenplay. Um, I think sort of the usual the usual folks that worked with Leone, I think. Mm-hmm. But it's fascinating because this is, this is probably the most personal of the films for Leone. Obviously he kind of stole the first film from uh, Kurosawa. He got sued over it even. <laughs> um, where, but this one, he had a fascination with America, a fascination with the American civil war specifically. And this film is in a lot of ways, a war film and his commentary uh, and a European's, perspective i think on the american civil war yeah and i think that's why the portrayal of the civil war is so unique that's one reason it's so unique in this movie it's it's very unlike the way civil war was portrayed i think in other westerns sometimes yes and yet yeah he took pains to make sure that it was reasonably accurate too even yeah yeah all these little details with the trains and stuff 
All right, uh, let's get started. It's a three-hour movie because we are watching the director's cut or the special edition, however you want to think of it. Mm-hmm. I'm caffeinated. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> and uh, uh, we'll start after the MGM logo and right before the actual title sequence, the fantastic uh, animated uh, title sequence comes up by the uh, the uh, uh, famous Ingenio Lardani. That'll work. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll start that on three, two, one, go. Is your sound down? Yes, it is. We get, of course, uh, not only the uh, the animation, but of course the Ennio Morricone score, just one of the most iconic in all film, let alone Western film. Everybody knows it if if they don't, even if they don't know where it's from. It's one of those. Yeah. Uh, very reminiscent. These these credits are of uh, Saul Bass and. Uh, who worked with uh, Hitchcock and uh, Morris Binder, who worked on the uh, the James Bond films and also Charade. Oh, with Audrey Hepburn and... Um... Uh, Cary Grant? Yeah. Yeah. There's a... I don't know. It, it, it's fascinating. These, these little animated riders on the horses, it's only a few frames. Mm-hmm. Um, th- and it just repeats back and forth and he uses it. You know what it also reminds me of is a bit of Terry Gilliam's animation work. Like in uh, time bandits or, or um... yeah, wherever he used them in the Monty Python stuff. Oh, he would, okay. he would often do, you know, animations of cut out characters, cut out, cut out figures, and they would just be kind of little, you know, a few frames here and there back and forth. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, rem- I remember that. We are doing this commentary in the wake of, uh, almost literally in the wake, aren't we, in of uh, the passing of uh, Eli Wallach at the age of 98. It's amazing. He died on uh, the 24th of June this year, mm-hmm. uh, 2014. He was the oldest of the three principal uh, actors. He was 52 uh, whereabouts uh, making this movie. And uh, Van Cleef was 43, and Eastwood was 36. Eastwood looks 36, but the, the other two look about that age, I think. I think Eastwood looks a little older than that. I mean, he's, I think... Oh, does he? I think he does. There, it, there was a moment when uh, the monk says, uh, oh, he'll recover, he'll just be fine, he's young. And I thought, Is, he's young? And then I right. went, looked it up, I went, yeah, he's only 36. Man, he's a, a bit weather-worn from playing uh, from playing Western heroes, I suppose. Sure. Of course, he comes to us in these Dollars trilogies. He comes to us from uh, from uh, the television show uh, where he played Rowdy Yates, uh, Rawhide. Mm-hmm. And we see, in fact, uh, he even brought his gun with him to these movies because it's the it's the one with the rattlesnake handle. Oh, it's the same one. Yes, he he got that in the in one episode of the TV show, and he. I don't know if he brought that specific gun, but he 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 used them in the uh, the f- the first two dollars trilogies. It's a, a single action uh, uh, Colt pistol, but obviously since this is set earlier, they they use a different pistol. But he still uses the uh, the uh, uh, the same 
rattlesnake type handle. He uses a Colt Navy 1851 uh, in this movie. I did not know that. It was one of the things from my childhood that looked that that, that made this film so distinctive. The way that uh, since it's set a bit earlier in the 1860s, not in the 1870s or 80s, they use these earlier guns, and they're they're very unusual. And they they try actually uh, to be very accurate with them. They even they even mock up a couple of guns to look like earlier guns. But of course, they have to be they have to use brass cartridges. Um, in order to be able to file, fire blanks, hmm. uh, and the earlier guns didn't fire uh, fire cartridges; they used um, uh, uh, percussion caps and that sort of thing. So it's it's an interesting if you if you love guns and, and I love guns, uh, it's an interesting uh, film for that reason. There's a lot of guns in this movie. I mean, uh, <laughs> and you see you see the uh, what do they call it the the flame that comes out of the front of the weapon when it fires you you see that when Tuco fires a couple times and probably when other characters fire um, you know what I mean that little flame yeah, yeah the yeah. flash yeah the muzzle yeah. flash okay yeah it, yeah you see that so that I mean that I know that they're, they're not firing real ammunition on a movie set but it always seems to me that something's coming out of the front of the I, I don't even know how blanks work actually <laughs> maybe that's the problem <laughs> Yeah, they typically have an actual uh, powder charge, but it's a smaller than usual powder charge, and the front is is crimped over so that uh, it'll hold it in, but not there, it just blows out, and then there's nothing physically that comes out. There's there's usually some wadding, and that's what killed a couple of actors famously. Uh, Brandon Lee and uh, and uh, John Eric Hexham were killed on set uh, playing with uh, blanks. And so what happened there? I'm not I'm not trying to derail our discussion but I mean, so what happened there is when you shoot blanks they're not there's nothing that's supposed to come out of the gun but something did a bit of wadding that helps keep the uh, the powder in place if you hold it if you hold the pistol close enough to your head that wadding will still go through your skull oh my yeah unfortunately and there we have the introduction of tuco yeah it's it's such a strange thing that they do those freeze frames with the the pet name of the character or the titular name of the character. Yeah, it's funny. They, they thought of that title fairly late. Um, and Is that yet, right? Yeah. And they, I forget what they were going to call it originally, but uh, um, it came fairly late and, and yet they, they label these characters in a, in a very iconic way. Sure. In a very unusual fashion, because I don't know that I completely agree that, <laughs> that he's ugly and that the other two are good or bad. I, I wanted. I, I thought we. I thought we could get into that at some point. The the um the labeling is sort of. They're all bad, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that's one of the things I love. Oh, this this thing here, by the way, this contraption. I'm I'm an urban person. I mean, it seems to me. See how the kid gets off and the donkey still goes. Yeah. The kid didn't have to be on the donkey for the donkey to be doing that. The donkey will just do it, won't he? Why Why was the kid riding the donkey? I think, you see the donkey's not moving now. I think the kid sort of encourages the donkey. So he may not, he may not do it by himself all the time. Oh, so the kid has to be on the donkey. In order to yeah. keep it moving, yeah. Or to keep him moving faster, you lazy donkey. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, he, uh, the donkey, they don't, probably don't do it for hours at a time. They, he probably only pumps the water for, you know, I don't know, 10 minutes at a time. And he's got plenty of water for the, sure. the day. These landscapes are just incredible. We really, I, I apologize for talking over the last scene uh, because that was, 
a fantastic uh, scene. I, I think most of this was shot in Spain, mm-hmm. and it's just amazing. Yeah, I mean the the locations they got really do look like <laughs> you know bombed out Civil War Western places you know or i is this supposed to be mexico where he is now well that's a very good question uh this is the stevens farm the guy that we're about to meet is named stevens if you believe that <laughs> well he's certainly his wife and child are spanish because they speak spanish or they mexican because they speak spanish now this this is one of the scenes obviously tarantino has talked about how important this movie was to him this is one of the scenes where i really see where Quentin Tarantino's coming from (laughs) or where what you know this is where you really see where he got it I think because this this scene this introduction to Angel Eyes and what he does to this family this is the first scene in Inglorious Bastards it's the same scene in a lot of ways yes it is there's nobody hiding under the floorboards here but yeah right it's the same idea you know I mean he this this brutal character who's going to be one of the big bads in the movie comes in and just terrorizes these people and you know we we start with the camera outside the house we we follow him in you know it's almost from van cleef's uh, point of view you know <laughs> yeah and it's very deliberate as well that we spend about two minutes outside and and this scene takes another seven minutes inside it's amazing yeah i love this scene i, I think i think it's you know with a bad director this would just be boring but i I don't find this boring at all right with a bad director he he just wouldn't have any purpose to having a scene stretch out as long as this and he and he would be doing it by accident but of course leone i think i do think that this film is too long at three hours i'll say that and 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 we can talk about what we might cut uh and what the in fact the american distributor did cut because Mm -hmm. it's been put a lot of that's been put back uh for this but um uh, this scene in particular, I, I completely agree. It totally works. It's, uh, I'm probably going to use the term iconic too much in talking about this, but when I think of a, of a Western, when I, when I was growing up in this, in the 1970s, and when I thought of Westerns, this is what I thought of, you know, with those vast vistas and everything. I didn't watch very many John Ford films. This is mm-hmm. what taught me what cinema was, let alone what Westerns were. And this kind of drawn out, um, scene where the characters are eyeing one another in a in a in a kind of uh, wordless poker match. Um, this is this is the classic western to me. When did you first get into this and and encounter it? As a kid, my dad really loved this movie, and like a lot of movies, I watched movies as a very, very young kid with them, the movies they liked, and my dad, this was one of the movies he could quote from. He loved it. Um, he just loved Tuco, and I mean, it's, I think he loved the same things about it I loved now, so I, so I, I saw this very, very early on, and, uh, you know, have always liked it, never didn't never was there a question that I didn't like. I didn't realize how long it was when I was a kid, but, um, yeah, I mean, very early on childhood, I saw this movie on television. Yeah. It's certainly a a part of my childhood as well. And, uh, I think that, uh, it's something that is 
Westerns are just completely out of favor anymore. In fact, uh, I uh, I watch a lot of movies with my niece and nephew who are 11, and they just don't have any interest in watching a Western. In fact, they didn't want to watch Indiana Jones movies because he thought that it was a Western. Because because he had a hat on that looked a little bit like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I had to admit, well, I guess he does kind of ride around on horses in the desert quite a bit, but it's, it's different. Uh, trust me. Yeah. If you have a child in your family that doesn't like Indiana Jones, I, I think there needs to be some sort of intervention with that child. <laughs> They've seen all three of them yeah. now. They're, uh, yes, and, and, yeah. and they love them. And I, oh, and oh, I do good. mean all three. <laughs> Even Temple of Doom or Last Crusade? Uh, but, yes. Yeah. I'm only interested in what name Jackson's... Uh, living under now right this the story going on here i guess is is that uh angel eyes has been contracted to kill this man and uh stevens yeah right right and and like people do in movies he doesn't just come in and kill him he says a lot of shit to him before he kills him. <laughs> well he's trying to get this information about uh jackson um, and when he gets it, I, I, he's, I think he's playing both sides, uh, uh, I don't know, both yes, ends against he, the middle, isn't he? Yeah. He ends up killing the guy who, who hired him to kill this guy. You can almost see the wheels turning in Angel Eyes's head in that, um, he's, you know, talking to Baker about, oh, this guy, the three of you were involved in this, this heist of, uh, of all this gold sounds good to me. Yeah. I, I, yeah, certainly I will go and find out information about that for you. Yes, I will come and I'll come mm -hmm. right back. <laughs> It'll be my pleasure. Right. I, I love this movie. I, I, in the past, I've sort of tried to defend cynicism in movies or cynical movies. I, I think, I think cynicism, cynicism gets a bad rap. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, the, I've read online someone called this a very cynical movie because everybody's motivated by just greed and very base motivate. You know, they, they want this gold for themselves. They're banditos. They're, they're sort of bad dudes and they want personal gain. And, uh, you know, I am so fine with that <laughs> from a story's perspective. I, I am, I am so okay with people wanting things just because they're greedy this was kind of the end of the film noir period. Um, and it, it, it changed Westerns because Westerns did tend to be a little more optimistic in general. Mm -hmm. And this was one of those films that really borrowed from film noir for its character motivations. You're right. I mean, there really isn't anybody in here who's completely innocent except those, you know, incidental characters of the, of the wife and, and son and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Even Stevens here, uh, um, you know, is clearly he was part of a bad situation where he, he was uh, complicit in the in the original crime of stealing the money. Now, when he shot him under the table, that's a lot, a lot like when Tuco shoots the guy in the bathtub. It's the same sort of idea. He doesn't see the gun coming. Um, but who shot first there? Was it was it Greedo or? <laughs> Uh, that, well, that's a good question. Yeah, it is echoed, isn't it? In in uh, Star Wars, a lot yeah. of a lot of these scenes are echoed in other movies in in similar ways. Mm -hmm. I'm this not sure is, which one actually did shoot first. I, I think uh, I think Stevens went for his gun, and Angel Eyes, he not knowing that Angel Eyes had his gun under the table, right? And so it it sort of happened like that. Um, that is a very very sad scene 
that the, the whole thing that Angel Eyes does to that family. I mean, I guess the kid was going to shoot him, but it's still just he has no remorse or, or doesn't he doesn't feel bad about anything. What I find fascinating about his character is that he doesn't kill the other child and the the wife. He leaves them alive because they didn't do anything to him. Mm-hmm. They're not in his way. He's mm-hmm. a, a very amoral character. He, he doesn't, I mean, he obviously he, he, he could have raped her and then murdered her, right? If he was really a terrible person. Right. You mean a- amoral as opposed to immoral, right? Like exactly. He, he, he's, he just does things without respect to morality or without reference to morality. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly, it, it's, it's such a funny thing, you know, because the good the Clint Eastwood character is not good. Um, they're all the bad, but so these names are just kind of don't, don't have any more meaning than, than angel eyes or blondie. You know, it's just, it's just what the movie sort of, how the movie sort of chooses to characterize them, but they're all bad people from in my moral universe. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think we can all agree that the Eastwood's character is probably the most admirable. Mm-hmm. Of the three, but you're right. I mean, they're they're all pretty bad guys. The only, but but the movie, the only one that the movie doesn't try to get us to feel sympathy for is Angel Eyes. Right. So that makes him the bad in a way, I guess. Well, not only not only that, but I mean, he kills a kid in the in the second scene. So, well, there's that. <laughs> and he murders. I mean, th- this murder here is pretty brutal. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, we we're willing to accept pretty easily, pretty readily this label that to, that he gets. Yeah, no, he he definitely deserves it. I love the smoke coming off the pillow there. Right there, the bad. That's I th- one of the only times he smiles or laughs, and it's they freeze frame on it because it's when a character like that actually shows a smile, it, it's such an impactful thing. It's like watching Garbo laugh. <laughs> the movie just has a different uh, energy to it whenever Tuco's on screen. Just... It does because he is so uh, almost frenetic physically as well as verbally compared to the other two. And he has a real sense of humor that uh, the man with no name has a sense of humor a little bit that comes out. But he's the one who really says funny things and says sarcastic things. And ha- I mean, the other two do kind of, too, but the- he has a certain flair to him, you know. He's a bit of a clown character. Sure. And I can't think of very many characters in Western or adventure films in general that, that have that that aspect to him without being complete clowns and sidekicks. Yeah, that's true. So it's a, it's a very unusual portrayal and it's, uh, you know, a lot of it comes right down to Eli Wallach's choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did consider John Marie, uh, John Maria Volante for this role. He was the bad guy in the first two films, Dollars Trilogy. Is that right? They were going to have him play Tuco. But he, I don't, I think everyone agreed that he couldn't pull off the, the, the verbal aspect of the character since he didn't speak English. 
and the character has so many lines and yeah and and the sense of humor i don't think that that he certainly his portrayal of the previous two characters didn't have a, a real sense of humor yeah now wallach was a very highly uh seasoned and trained uh actor sort of a theater type right and uh, sort of didn't was it the actor's studio he worked at or um can't remember which of those acting um places he was a part of but it was one of them and he he was a very serious uh you know so, sort of one of these very serious actors who be, gets this iconic role playing uh someone not very sophisticated <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but at the same time, it's a choice role. I mean, a lot of this stuff right here, uh, when he's on the back of the of the horse, is improvised yeah. and everything. So it's, I can easily see why he would take the role to be sure. But yeah, he sure. definitely uh, had a, had a, a background with uh, Tennessee Williams plays and and stuff like that. And uh, he'd been working since the since the fifties. He was Mister Freeze on Batman. He was one of the one of the three Mister Freezes. That's right. Ah, you know your Batman. <laughs> Otto Priminger, the director, was my favorite of those guys. Yeah, that that's that's the funniest thing. I read a biography of Priminger a few years ago that came out. That that's that's the greatest bit of trivia ever. <laughs> now this this whole scam they have going is is one of my favorite things. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just the idea of he's going to turn him in. Uh, he's, they're going to, they're going to stage this whole thing. And just when the rope, I mean, it's so cinematic, you know, just when the rope is about to hang him, he, he uses his skill with the rifle to shoot the rope away. And then they make off presumably to the next town and do it all over again. That is just a great fucking idea. And I have no idea why. Uh, I think Richard Schickel mentions this in, in the official commentary for the movie. I have no idea why. Uh, Blondie wants out of that scam. It seems like a really good scam. I, I understand that motivation, I think, fairly well. Um, he's been putting up with Tuco for, for several of those incidences, and I think that he's just rubbed uh, Blondie the wrong way. By, and, ask, by asking for more money, you think? Is that... Yeah, demanding more money. He, he, he harangues him. Uh, repeatedly, you know, and I think at that, at that point, he just kind of goes, you know what? I'm just going to dump you at this point. Yeah. I, I could see why you'd want to break up with Tuco. Yeah, exactly. It's not you. It's me. We, we should, we should see other banditos. <laughs> and he does. I guess so. Yeah. The ill-fated shorty. Oh yeah. That's such a great, yeah. Th this is, I, I just, I, I, I can't say enough about how clever I think this whole thing and of course it comes back at the end the idea of the noose but um this whole idea of of you just as he's going to be hung they shoot the rope away i mean it they must have did they borrow that from somewhere was this an a real life thing because if they just made that up uh if leone and his screenwriter just made that up i mean that that's fantastic i don't know by this time in the 60s we'd had a good 60 years of uh of westerns being made, so I have to imagine it it it, it appeared somewhere else. Mm. Um, but uh, it is obviously it's sort of the central part of their story, um, and it's it takes an hour for their story to really cross paths with uh, Angel Eyes. Mm -hmm. They were really it's two parallel lines uh, for a long time here. Yeah, they sort of circle the they sort of circle each other. 
but never actually cross. And, and, and that's a very good term because circling circling is a major motif in the film. We saw a circle of uh, townsfolk uh, arranged around the uh, the gallows there. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, it's going to come back again and again until the end when we're in a circle for the final shootout even. Yeah. Yeah, it's so great. I have to imagine that what Blondie is thinking here is, you know, you should really kind of shut up and maybe thank me for not allowing you to be (laughs) hanged because A, you deserve it, and B, all I got to do is nothing. Right. (laughs) And and I get all the money. Now, my understanding is that there are are marksmen and people who can fire firearms so... I know nothing about this topic, but I mean, my understanding is that there are people who can do that so well that they could basically do this, that this is a doable thing, that you could shoot a rope from that far away and they could hit it a good amount of the time. Is that, is that crazy or is that? I've certainly seen some pretty amazing uh, trick shooting. Yeah. Uh, I have, I have too. Yeah. So it's, that's believable. It's less believable that he could shoot the hats off those townsfolk at, uh, (laughs) in that way, because, uh, the, the bullet would just go through the hat yeah. <laughs> and into their head. Because, <laughs> yeah. and in fact, there's another moment uh, when he's shooting, I can't remember if it was that previous one or if it's this one coming up here, where it seems to me that the bullets have to go somewhere after they hit the rope, especially the one that misses uh, entirely. Right. And uh, there are people, there are like women walking around behind there. I always think, man, that, it, it seems surely he's going to hit somebody <laughs> beyond Tuco. Going to tag a horse or something. Here love- is our first uh, cripple. Yeah. The, he, uh, Angel Ice calls him Shorty here, but that's not the same Shorty that. <laughs> there's there's two Shorties. Okay, right. good. Okay. <laughs> Shorty is the guy that gets hung when Tuco stops Blondie from shooting uh, the rope, and then this is the first Shorty. Maybe that's maybe that's a translation thing in the subtitles. Maybe one of those. Maybe this is the real shorty, and they just accidentally called that other guy shorty. I don't know. know. It would be tragic though if this if if uh, Blondie hooked up with this guy and then left him hanging. Yeah, the half soldier. This was one of my dad's favorite things. He's going to say, "Hand me down a whiskey." Uh, Yeah, when he goes in, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. In the previous film. Uh, Eastwood's character was known by the nickname Manko, which sort of means lefty, um, because he always kept one hand on his pistol. Uh. And it's kind of an implication that he is a cripple. And I think in that film, uh, it's been a while since I watched that one, I think, but uh, in that film, you know, I think we're supposed to get the impression that he's, that, that there is an aspect of his psychological makeup that is crippled at that point. Mm. Um, but in this film, we we completely trade that for numerous real cripples that I think s- speaks to the larger social uh, structure that, uh, that we're mm-hmm. making a comment on in a lot of ways. Well, they've, they've been, they've been uh, disabled by the war. It, right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all sort of right there. One thing I love, uh, it, w- it was a, a moment ago, but one thing I love is when they're reading the charges that uh, Tuco has been uh, convicted of uh, 
uh, rape of a member of the white race, rape of a virgin, you know, <laughs> and and you see the women, they, they have these, they cut to the faces of women in the crowd just gasping, and he, he, he growls at one of them. It's just really delicious stuff, you know, I mean, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, this, very much so. This is, a, this is a comedy at this point. I mean, we even get a bit of fast motion here, even. <laughs> Like the little rascals. <laughs> That's right. Uh, one of those commentaries on the disc uh, points out that uh, that uh, Sergio Leone was a big fine arts collector and was was very much influenced in his cinematic style by um, the fine arts, particularly Spanish artists like Goya and Dali, sure. in these landscapes and. Um, it may have been that as much as John Ford and other Western directors that influenced his uh, his visual style. Mm. It, you know, he's absolutely fearless about putting tiny figures in a huge landscape, and at the same time, cutting to v- extremely tight close-ups of their faces. Right. It's 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 one extreme or another. Yeah. It isn't it such a strange thing that. At a certain point in the history of movies, a a bunch of Italian directors started making movies about the Old West in America. Isn't that just kind of a weird... It's such a weird thing. It does seem weird, but at the same time, I think... I guess that we in America have made movies set in other foreign countries mm. that are, you know, medieval adventures and stuff like that. Sure. Um, Unlikely, I guess, is what I mean. It's a very, it's not something you would predict, you know. Well, westerns were so big. I mean, so big for the first half of the of the twentieth century that I think they were just made all over the world, wherever it made sense. Hmm. Um, because everybody fell in love with cowboys. Yeah. The good. Now he gets the label the good just because he left Tuco alive. Well, I think I think it's a it's a little bit of a of a goof there maybe that he do, he just does something he just double crossed someone and and he's good. And and in a way you're right. I think it's a it's a bit of uh, playfulness on the part of the of the storyteller that um, like this is as good as it gets. Get used to it. <laughs> right, right. In this movie, this is the good guy because we immediately follow up with the seventh cavalry dumping off a prostitute whom they have clearly mistreated. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. This is really rough stuff. And, and what follows in this scene with the angel eyes is brutal. She goes from one person brutalizing her to another person. Brutal. Yeah. 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 That's a very good point. I don't know that uh, Leone, I don't know what Leone felt about women. But he certainly didn't give them big roles in his uh, his, his Dollars trilogy. Uh, in the first of the films, there is a couple of women, I think, who are very important. But, of course, he's borrowing that story largely from someone else. So it's hard to say. Um, uh, but, yeah, yeah, it would have been nice to have uh, uh, a larger role for women in some of these movies. Do you think Do you think that there there isn't because that's kind of a function of the genre of the fact that it's a Western or something else. Because when I think of Italian directors, I actually think of movies that have pretty prominent roles for women. Um, 
when I just Italian directors generally. So I, is that the fact that this is a Western, do you think? I think it's partly the fact that it's a Western and partly because I think Italy has a kind of a male centric, uh, call it chauvinist, I guess, um, uh, viewpoint, particularly at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they held women up as, you know, lovers and mothers, but that's not particularly. Yeah. You know, Madonna. Whore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Madonna. Whore. In fact, we, we've had the Madonna and the whore already now in this film. Exactly. And they're, they're incidental characters. I mean, every movie Fellini ever made just about does that. Yes. With women, you know. You have to almost go to Truffaut and other French directors to get women treated with a, 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 a with a, with greater equality and a, a sort of a, I don't know, made into actors of of their own agents of their own fate. You know. Mm-hmm. In in westerns, it seems the main convention for women characters is sort of damsel, right? Is the sort of Grace Kelly in High Noon. Or just a pretty woman, or a prostitute. <laughs> well, I, well, I would I would say Grace Kelly in High Noon is an unusual case because she isn't just a damsel. She she tells him off. She tells oh, him, "Oh, you're you right. Know, yeah. Don't do this. Uh, I don't want to be with you anymore. I'm going to leave you." And and, uh-huh. and she's a stronger character than than most women. But yeah, I agree that uh, the, it's the Western genre for the most part that, uh, and and I think it's a supremely American thing to largely. Um, sideline women in films. I, I, I complain that to this day we don't get very good uh, female roles in uh, action and v- adventure movies. Yeah, we're we're still operating under the same conventions, even if even if they've been uh, expanded a little here and there. Uh, Tuco has survived his his walk through the desert and is refreshing himself at a uh, fantastic. Uh, well, I guess you'd call it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know where they got this actor, uh, but he's he's just got the right face for this. He does. Oh gosh, he's great. Yeah. This is you mentioned it before. Which which of uh, you know where we think uh, the movie could be shorter? I mean, anything this long could be shorter. Um, I think this scene. Is, is not as uh, suspenseful as some of the other scenes that run this long. I think, uh, particularly at the beginning here, it it is. It's kind of a three beat gag. The first beat is these pistols, and there's a fantastic collection of pistols. Uh, some of these are actually much too uh, too late uh, to be period correct. Um, but what he does with this pistol thing is is very funny and. Uh, 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 interesting. And then mm-hmm. he goes out and fires the pistol and we have a gag out there and then he comes back in and we have the gag of, of robbing the guy. And you're right, overall it's, it ends up too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean this whole part where he's showing him the weapons and oh, let me show you this. And that, I mean, I, I feel like we could just cut to the part where he takes one of them and turns it on the guy, you know, you, but, but that's this whole movie, right? I mean, look at that, that opening scene with uh, angel eyes where he goes to the ranch or whatever it is, you know, you could, you could easily take two minutes out and just cut to the part where he gets to the doorway or cut, cut to the part where he sits down. Not, not literally cut to it, but 
you know, you can you can trim that. But Leone sort of refuses to do anything of the sort in this movie. Um, yeah, you didn't need a two minute approach to the Stevens farm. You didn't need the almost five minutes of uh, of torture in the desert. We didn't need almost five minutes of uh, of uh, the the runaway ambulance that we capture the runaway ambulance and finally get information out of uh, Bill Carson. Um, but, uh, and we certainly didn't need the, I don't know what it is, 30 minutes at the bridge. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the 30 minutes or so at the, uh, the, uh, uh, well, it's probably 20 minutes at the prison. Yeah. This scene, I don't know. I love this scene. I, I love, we could have done away with the, his initial, those, those guns that he looked in initially and then swept them away, we could have just cut that out completely and, and cut to the part where he assembles a pistol. Um, we didn't need this full gag. This could have been cut down. And then we could go to the, to the robbing of the guy. But uh, because we, we've got all the, at this point, we've already got all the character we need out of Tuco. <laughs> I was going to say, what, what is the story function of this scene? What, what, do, what do we learn in this scene that we need to understand the rest of the movie? Yes. And I think the only answer is that he's still deadly with a pistol. Or this is how he acquires his new pistol. But that seems like a small detail. Uh, obviously, oh, sure. obviously, pistols are all over the place. And a man like him could <laughs> definitely acquire one without much trouble. That's a great little joke there. I'm not so sure I believe that uh, a guy walking in from the desert, almost dead, uh, could be that good with a pistol, with a pistol uh, on the range mm-hmm. like that. Well, the store owner couldn't believe it either. Uh, well, yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a remarkable thing. What is that he's putting on the gun there? Uh, a lanyard to put it around his neck. Really? Isn't that dangerous? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, a lot of those guns are, had a ring like that to, in order to put a lanyard on it. Oh, okay. I think that was more of a cavalry thing, though, so that they wouldn't, uh, if they dropped their gun, they could still retrieve it. Right. I got it. There's, there's no, um, you know, Tuco is a Mexican character, and I, I, I don't really. There's no. You know that that doesn't really come up uh, as a as a as in any kind of racist way, or uh, people don't seem to treat him differently because he's a Mexican, which which people would have done, you know. Um, but but they seem to treat him the way they treat him because he's such a, a bastard. Um, but it, it, they, the movie doesn't really comment on race in that kind of way. You're right, and I think that that may be a fact. Um, that sort of stems from the Italianness again, because I don't think that in Italy they would have had the same sense of race uh, that uh, we had in the U.S. <coughs> but at the same time, I don't know what uh, you know how he would have been um, treated differently, other than uh, as you mentioned when they read off the. Uh, the charges, one of the charges is raping a woman specifically of the white race. Right. Now this was, this is a scene that was put back into the film. Yep. And, uh, 
It was, I, I believe it played in the Italian version, and it was cut for U.S. distribution. Yeah, when the movie premiered in Rome, I believe this is this was there, and then they, as you say, they they took it out. But it, but it doesn't. Uh, it, it, nothing really is important that goes on here. We just learned where Tuco, how Tuco reunites with his his uh, his gang. Yeah, it's more color and character for Tuco. And at this point, we we don't really need it very much. But I, I have to admit, I do like this scene. Well, um, it's a it's a showcase for Wallach. I mean, yeah, he, he's absolutely great here. He's talking to himself basically for the first half of it or so. Yeah, that's true. You know, he's, this is just this is a monologue. You know, I don't know what kind of ego he had, but yeah, it's got to feed your your actor's ego to have a big speech like this. Here, here, pluck this chicken, Eli. <laughs> right, right. And in fact, he actually came back at the age of I think whatever ninety five or something to to dub this scene because it didn't have a final audio in English. Right, right. right. And Eastwood came back as an older man and did some uh, dubbing of uh, Blondie. That's right. And they got a, a third guy to uh, do uh, the Angel Eyes uh, stuff for the the reinserted scenes. Oh, that's right. Because uh, because Lee Van Cleef died in the late 80s, I think. Uh, Van Cleef died at the age of 64 in 1989, yeah. Mm, 64, yeah. He must have been a smoker or something. He, uh, it, yes, he had, he had cancer of some kind. I forget what it was, but, uh, that wasn't the main cause. I don't think it was like, like a heart failure or heart disease or something. Uh, this movie is very, very specific about the dollar amounts. I always love when movies do that, you know, $1,000, yeah. $2,000. It's tough to get right. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. of the, I mean, on the one hand, you you risk making your audience laugh at how small the numbers are, but uh, mm-hmm. because of uh, inflation. But I agree, I like it too, for almost for that reason. Uh, yeah, Van Cleef died of heart disease, but he had uh, he had a pacemaker actually from the early '80s, so it was quite a bit of trouble and uh, mm-hmm. throat cancer uh, as, as a secondary cause. Ah. Uh. Um, speaking of which, uh, 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 Eastwood did not smoke and he actually chose these, uh, his cigars apparently, um, to be as horrible as possible, both to put him in a bad mood and to keep him from being interested in continuing to smoke. Yeah. I love that little detail. That is so, uh, it, it probably would, I mean, it probably would put you in a, in a horrible mood if you had to smoke something that tasted, a cigar that tasted really badly. I like you know, this character, the, uh, what is it, hotel keeper, uh, who, who hates the military and just pretends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. General Sibley, he looks dead. <laughs> Yeah, he's a bit of a. Uh, I'm not sure what I want to say. A Greek chorus, but I don't think that's that's right. He's a he's a character that comments on everything that's going on, and, he, and he's almost explaining to us because that woman in the background is not even paying attention to him, really. Right, right. right. 
I, I do like the idea of he's somebody that just just cheers on whoever's going by and you know, whichever way the wind blows. So. Marconi, or sorry, uh, uh, Sergio Leone um, did quite a bit of research on the American Civil War and learned to his uh, uh, to his uh, pleasure that there were battles in the West and this kind of stuff did in fact happen. And in fact, he tracked the the uh, southwestern campaign of these generals. So this this is accurate, about as accurate as it could be, um, considering that uh, it's not even the main focus of the film. Uh, it's uh, j- just background. Yeah, it's the the world they inhabit is a world that is where this war is going on and they they don't they get mixed up in it you know they get mistaken for soldiers and stuff but they don't really care about these larger political you know they they don't really care about anything except their gold and it's it, I I don't know I just love that <laughs> There's something about the fact that the there is a as brutal as these three characters are and how we've already agreed that they're all three kind of bad guys um there is a much bigger much more brutal much more um, amoral, if not immoral, struggle going on that they don't care anything about and they don't have any interest in getting involved in. Right. And and yet that we are that we as the audience, especially an American audience, are really kind of expected to have taken sides on and actually care about and feel like there is a a, a good guy bad guy uh, uh, relationship in that. Hmm. I love this this the way this scene comes off here. It, it, it's we we're looking at the horses, you know, they, they're the the noise of the horses we think is concealing their footsteps, and but Eastwood seems to sense they're coming, and he has to put his gun together just in time. You know, all the I, I like scenes that do this. You know, there's all these things going on at once and suspense. Yeah, I, it's it has a high noon aspect to it uh, in that respect that we often don't get in westerns. Oh, for a movie this long, something something like this is almost always happening. You know, where if something isn't happening, then you're sort of building up to something that's going to happen. There's very few times in this movie where people are just sort of sitting around shooting the breeze. They're always sort of getting ready for some some big fight or something, blowing up a bridge. Or, well, yeah, and in fact, the obviously those are the, the those uh, parts where that's not happening tended to be the parts that the American distributors cut out. Um, so there are now those back in anyway. But uh, uh, for the most part, the right from the very beginning, that scene with um, Angel Eyes getting information about Bill Carson, um, there is a nice clear through line of who's doing what, when, and why. And there are only a couple of parts where we where we as an audience kind of are are right to wonder. Wait a minute, how how did they show up there? How did right. that happen? Um, right. And even then, there's there is potentially a pretty good explanation for it. Mm-hmm. Like how did how did Tuco know where to find him? Uh, you know, there probably aren't very many towns around, and uh, you know, he maybe he searched one or two, but uh, yeah. He's been on his trail. We see him trailing him physically after this, too. 
Mm-hmm. There are two kinds of spurs, my friend. Those that come by the in by the door and those that come out by the window. Or the, sorry, they come in by the window. So this is... Uh, multiple times in this film, characters say there are two kinds of people or two kinds of things, right? Yes. Over and over again. And yet the film is set around this trio. <laughs> right. My theory is that it it's kind of purposely done to set Tuco apart from the other two and that the other two are really two sides of the same coin. How does that suit you? That sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> It is funny that there's three, and we we keep being told that there's two. <laughs> in the, in, uh, in the uh, movie uh, Inside Lewin Davis, uh, there's this part where, where one of the characters says, you know, there are two kinds of people in the world. Uh, people who separate the world into two kinds of people, and and then the character just trails off, and you, <laughs> you, you never hear. <laughs> They they throughout the movie they just do this. It's just they're doing to each other what the what the guy did to him. You know, you did this to me. Now how does it feel? Uh, okay, you double cross me like this. Now how does it feel? Yeah, we get multiple cases of revenge. Yeah. Uh, and which is go ahead. Sorry. And that, and you're right. That that revenge keeps taking the form of a a mirror or a callback to the earlier thing. Cause over mm-hmm. and over again, we, we get, we get cycles of these, you know, the character from the very beginning of the film showing up later and, mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. Tarantino says this is his favorite movie and you know, he's got a big revenge thing in his movies too. So yeah, you can almost construct Tar- uh, Tarantino's movies from this movie in certain mm-hmm. ways. I mean, Reservoir Dogs is the the adventurers going after the heist and betraying one another, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and uh, uh, you know the the um, Pulp Fiction has uh, has the killers, um, you know, um, plying their trade. Right. Well, the music in the Kill Bill movies is, you know, sounds a lot like the music in this movie at times. Yeah, I think it's partly, yeah, Kill Bill is a very interesting case because it's inspired by Chinese movies as much as it is by American movies and I I think these these Westerns. Um, But... I think and he, it's almost getting at a at a deeper truth, which is the Westerns were inspired by Japanese movies, Kurosawa's movies, and Kurosawa's mm-hmm. movies were inspired by Westerns themselves. <laughs> so it's it's they, they they kind of all come together in uh, in Tarantino's movies, and, and which some people fault him for, right? His movies being a hodgepodge, yeah, a pastiche of other people's films. I don't think that's fully true because I think he is creative in the way that he puts those pieces together. But uh, he certainly is more aware of uh, the history of cinema. Yeah. I mean, he's a he's a movie fan, you know, and 
he can't not be a fan in the way he makes his movie. You know, there's so much homage going on, and but he's he he, he does very much his own thing too. You know, I, I think I do think it's unfair that people fault him for that too much sometimes. He, he's he, definitely an original in his own right. Yeah, he gets aped as much as he is aping, to be sure. <laughs> right, right, right. How many how many lines I mean Eastwood isn't on screen right now but I, I Lee Van Cleef made me think of this how many lines do you think Blondie has had in this film so far cuz we're we're a ways in it, yeah it's certainly not very many um I mean he has very short conversations with Tuco and almost no conversations with anyone else But, but uh, Angel Eyes is, is kind of the same way. He has a longer conversation, obviously, with Stevens and with uh, Baker. Um, but he's certainly not verbose. Mm-hmm. Here is our second example of, uh, of uh, cripples and our second example of, uh, of our characters running into uh, you know, a military unit. It's kind of all... It's going to be the... It's... it's it's clear that the, these characters are going to be picking their way through effectively a battlefield through the rest right. of the movie. A- Angel Eyes had the, the smallest little reaction to it, you know, just the smallest little, you could see that he was in some way troubled by it or affected by it. Yep. And that's all we get. You know, he doesn't say anything. He... This and I think we see it elsewhere in the film too, I think is a little bit self-indulgent on Sergio Leone's part because it's kind of his comment on the American Civil War. This doesn't help us right. tell the story, but he thinks it's a fascinating piece of history. And uh, and he says, look what we reduced our own people to mm-hmm. in order to fight our own selves. Mm-hmm. This is one of several times that characters offer... Uh, our, our three main characters offer uh, liquor to someone in order to comfort them. <laughs> it, that's a recurring theme, but that might be just an Italian thing. <laughs> I was I was going to say, you know, that's a very Italian sort of form of comfort. And I can fact, tell you. Yeah, the, the bottles, for the most part, are very Italian bottles, too. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Oh, that, that wrapped in rope or twine whatever it is i i guess it i i i mean i've seen that on wine bottles yeah i was trying to think who who could play if leone didn't get these actors who could who in hollywood at that time could have played these characters and i had a a tough time thinking of anybody who could have played uh blondie the way Eastwood does. I, I think that to me, that seems like a very hard one uh, because maybe I've just associated him so strongly with the character now. Yeah. I think that uh, the character in a lot of ways was written for him. Uh, and certainly the second, the, the, the second and third film were written for him yeah. uh, with him in mind. Yeah. So uh, I don't think you can get away from that, but um yeah, Steve McQueen was around. He was in uh, the, the Magnificent Seven. Um, mm-hmm. He could have done a nice job with this. Uh, Yul Brenner would have been interesting as Angel Eyes. 
Um, uh, I think there's, we, we, I mean, there are so many westerns. You could, you could, Jack Elam would have been in here somewhere. I don't think, I don't think he would have been quite right for Tuco, but, but yeah, yeah, he could have cast this with, as an American film. It would, it would have had a different feel to it, to be sure, though. Mm-hmm. These guys, I mean, all of them, Lee Van Cleef, all of them, I mean, they're so perfect <laughs> as these characters. They really it, it inhabit the roles in a way that uh, you didn't often see in this, even in the 60s, but certainly before the 60s, especially with Westerns. They were, Westerns were, um, I don't know, movies in general were up to this point cast almost by central casting and um, because we were still uh, prior to this in the studio system. So people had to have a job. I mean, you, you were paying this guy, so we, let's put him in a movie. Right. Right. Um, so it was, it was, I think around this time in the early sixties, mid sixties that uh, the cast system or the uh, studio system began to break down. And obviously this is an independent, uh, you know, Italian feature. So it's outside of the Hollywood uh, structure anyway. But um, um, I think there was therefore more freedom in casting and uh, certainly more freedom in, in writing the story. I mean, uh, the, there's some, some of the brutality here you just wouldn't see in an American movie for, for a few more years. And yet this changed American film to become what it was in the late 60s and early 70s. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. I mean, directly out of this is what you, is where you get um, Dirty Harry, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know that you could have Dirty Harry if you didn't have this to come before it, uh, and Death Wish and, and movies like that, and Midnight Cowboy, all of, all of that uh, new age of American cinema. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to give too much credit to to Leone uh, because. Times were changing in a lot of ways, but uh, uh, I think this was part of it. Well, I think you're right. Oh, yeah, Shorty has legs there. <laughs> so <laughs> definitely a different Shorty. <laughs> it was a common nickname. <laughs> There's a resonance here in this film with uh, Vietnam and uh, some of the some of the aspects. I think harken back to. World War II and even World War One, uh, so it's not just a comment on the American Civil War, but it's a comment on war in general. I think mm-hmm. um, this was made obviously at the time. This was made in '66. The Vietnam War was not in full swing yet, but uh, uh, I think the it was still on TV quite a bit because uh, we had had America had had uh, troops in Vietnam for several years up to this point. It's funny, you know, that this movie has much to say about war and, uh, you know, but is it is it some sort of moral tract when it comes to the actual main story it's telling? I mean, what is the lesson we're to glean from the greed and uh, self-interestedness sort of uh, motivations of these characters and where they end up at the end? You know, is there is there a, a moral lesson there? Uh, I'm not, uh, it seems like it has much more to say about this war subplot than it does about the, the ethics of what these guys are doing in the main story. I think all of the dollars trilogy is about an anti-hero. 
we are supposed to admire the characters for their skill and tenacity, but not want to emulate them. I, I right. think that's the lesson of the antihero in general. Mm-hmm. And that's why these are different from American Westerns, because the American Westerns did tend to strongly have real straight up white headed heroes. When I think of uh, the man with no name too, I think of that, you know, that, that movie high plains drifter. I really love that movie. Um, and it, it opens with a pretty, pretty vicious scene. <laughs> and then it goes on from there, you know, just, just this brutal, brutal, uh, the man with no name is just really, uh, a bad dude in that movie, but you end up rooting for him, even though he's sort of <laughs> very mean. Yeah. Eastwood was tired of working with Leone, not because I think for any particular personal reason, but because it was in Italy and Spain and they weren't working, working in English and everything. And he was of course becoming a filmmaker himself. Uh, I forget when um, play Misty for me, I forget when he did that, but uh, he was getting interested in in having more control. So, yeah, he went off back to America and started doing Westerns very much in this style. Mm-hmm. Hang Em High and High Plains Drifter and and uh, uh, Outlaw Josie Wales and a few others for several more years, right? Mm-hmm. I think Play Misty for me, I, I don't remember which of those comes before the other, but Play Misty for me, is that 70 or 71? He does that and uh, seventy one. Yep. Okay. So he did he did westerns after that too, and some very good ones. Yeah. So let's see. After the good, the bad, and the ugly. So let's let's go back. Um, he was doing Rawhide until sixty five, uh, from fifty nine to sixty five, and he did Fistful of Dollars um, right toward the end of that in sixty four. It didn't get released in the United States for a year or two, I think. Um, and he had already signed on to do a few dollars more in 65. And mm-hmm. then this, they did this in 66 uh, with uh, some cajoling from uh, Sergio Leone to, to come back and do it again. Um, then he did, Eastwood did a film called The Witches uh, in 67, which I think was a, another Italian movie. Yeah, Moro Bol- Bolognini, a film I'm not familiar with. Um, but then he did Hang 'em High in '68 and Coogan's Bluff. That's uh, the Don Siegel, the Don Siegel movie. That, that, yeah, yeah. He did Hang 'em High for Ted Post and uh, and Coogan's Bluff for Don Siegel and um, uh, Where Eagles Dare in '68, uh, another uh, terrific film. Paint Your Wagon in '69, Two Mules for Sister Sarah. So he's still he's do, still doing westerns. West westerns are still pretty big, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that uh, I don't think that uh, John Wayne would die until '73, and he worked until his death. Uh, but Kelly's Heroes is a very interesting case in 1970 because I think that that film has a lot in common with this film. It's it, it's a war movie. It's World War II in that case, but its characters who are supposed to be soldiers, but they, they go off and uh, pull a, a gold heist. Mm. Are you familiar with that film? I, I don't think I've ever seen that. I like that one a lot. It's an ensemble film with Telly Savalas, Don Rickles, uh, Donald Sutherland, uh, in a crazy beatnik 
proto-hippie kind of role. It's a fascinating movie. Uh, directed by Brian Hutton, who I'm not really familiar with for anything else. Is Don Rickles in that film? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Plays a character named uh, Oddball, I think. No, 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 I... that's, uh, that's Sutherland's character. It's, uh, it's a... Crap Game is his name. <laughs> I have vague memories. It has a crazy hippie song at the end. It's it's hilarious. I got I gotta I gotta rewatch that one. High Plains Drifter was seventy three even. Oh, oh, Josie Wills was seventy six. So he was already doing uh, Dirty Harry movies by that time. Mm. And the Dirty Harry movies were huge. I mean, that, those were popular movies. To be sure, yeah. Yeah, High Place River was the first of the westerns that he directed. I I I don't think I know the. That's why I asked about the order the films come in because I I don't think I know what made him, what really made him a huge star. I, I don't think I, I don't think it was westerns, was it? It was really Dirty Harry, wasn't it? That wasn't that the thing that made him sort of a huge star, or did he really? become a big star from from these westerns i think these three films because he was a popular tv star from from rawhide which was a western right and i think these three films really cemented him in the public's mind in america as uh, as this this laconic sort of character mm-hmm. but um the i th- think you're right that the dirty harry films catapulted him to real a-list star status. I think. I think so too. I, I think that these. I, I think he was a known, you know, actor in these movies. But a lot of these westerns were not huge, you know, in the way that the the Dirty Harry movies were kind of a phenomenon, uh, or or at least did very well, you know. Yeah. But, uh, obviously, they made they made more than one. <laughs> Yeah, they, yeah. What was it? I don't know, five of those or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, any any time that happens, uh, it, it's a, a sign of success. This is really uh, one of the things they point out on the special features is it, how long we watch just this shot of Blondie rolling <laughs> rolling down the hill. But this is this is one of the things in which I think the the sort of drawn out, take your time kind of thing that Leone does. This is one of the things where I think it's great with stuff like that. Because in the desert like this, to see, you really feel the heat, and to watch him roll all the way down there, I think that does kind of emphasize something in a way uh, that it couldn't be emphasized by having it take half that long, you know? And here the sun's coming right into the lens, you know? I mean, uh, I think it, it's warranted a little more with that shot. My only problem with it is, uh, well, obviously parts of this were, were cut back in for this version. I think they cut out the, the, the foot washing scene uh, earlier to reduce some of this. But my only problem is that this isn't leading to something between the characters. Uh, it's leading to this moment when the ambulance arrives and uh, uh, and in a almost a comical aspect um Blondie is saved by a an ambulance, right? right. <laughs> but it's it's purely incidental. <laughs> right. It's just something that has piqued uh, Tuco's curiosity because otherwise, I suppose he would have killed him at that moment. Right. So it's a, I don't know. Uh, it's a 
it's a break for the film because this is now almost the midpoint of the movie. Well, no, it's about one third of the way through. Um, actually, we're at the, uh, the one hour point. But this is the most important moment because this is where their timeline, their story crosses with Angelizes because this is where they encounter Bill Carson. Right. Purely Luckily by enough. Right. Luckily enough, just as he died. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But if that hadn't happened, of course, we would have told either their story without the, the gold part, or we would have told Angel Eyes's story without them being in it. Um, so I think in that respect, this is a forgivable uh, coincidence. Although it's certainly a cliche that uh, uh, Bill Carson is just on the edge of death. Right, right, right. But it's it's moments like this that give us um, the ups and downs in the conflict that um, that break up the story just enough that it, that a three hour movie is bearable. It, that it's it, even though it's very long, um, we're t- we're now turning this story on its head. It's it's no longer about uh, Tuco and Blondie in the desert. And the, and the relationship between them uh, and who's going to get revenge and, and win out in the end, because now they're going to uh, start uh, collaborating <laughs> and cooperating right. in a reluctant fashion. You could have started the movie 10 minutes ago, and it still would have worked okay. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I mean... Because there's not much that we needed to know about these characters, uh, we, we obviously we would have been curious about their their backstory, but uh, um, we get some of that later anyway. So yeah, it's... Now, now that they're all on the same track, you you definitely could have started the story. That little um, purse that he pulls out there is fascinating to me. It's like a I don't know if it's a clam or an oyster shell that uh-huh. has been hinged and uh, upholstered on the inside, and it has Bill Carson's name on it, and it's got a little clasp on it. It's it's hilarious. It's a little clam now, purse. Now, doesn't that hold tobacco? Is snuff? That, yeah, maybe it's tobacco or snuff. I don't know. Well, I think Angel Eyes says at one point, this is Bill Carson's tobacco. Oh, yeah, he's uh, yeah he's snuffing it, yeah. Oh, look at that. Okay. It's interesting that this is the first time we ever see Bill Carson, uh, or Jackson is his real name, I guess, um, because he has a whole backstory that we, it seems like we ought to know a little bit about, but we don't. Right. Cormac, uh, if you've ever read Cormac McCarthy's sort of Western novels, he does this sort of thing too, where, hey, it seems like we should, we should be, we should know more about that. <laughs> and, and he just doesn't. Doesn't give it to you. I I do like though how Tuco basically says, "I don't care about your story. <laughs> Just go on about the money. Right. Just tell me about the money. They're not out for glory. They're not at, at a certain point in the movie. They stop being out for revenge as much, and they're <laughs> they just want their money. They just want the gold." Yeah. Well, he's uh, my point there is that he's speaking on behalf of the filmmaker 
who doesn't want to bother with <laughs> Bill sure. Carson's story. Sure. <laughs> This is a great gag, though, that he gets he gets the name of the cemetery from him, but he has to go away and get water, and then Blondie gets the name on the gravestone from him. It's right. just a great little gag. Right. And then Blondie uh, uses that the fact that he knows that later on to basically lie and say, no, no, I said it was this name, but it's actually the one next to that name. Yeah. The fact that one guy has this piece of information, the other guy has that piece of information. You know, it's, it's very, it's very, uh, I, I don't know. I like that kind of, uh, I, I dig that kind of storytelling. <laughs> you know, they're forced, they're forced to pool their efforts, not because they want to, but because, uh, the only way anybody's going to get anything if he hadn't earned it already this would feel very silly and uh an artificial but by the by this time we we sort of as an audience understand that this is the kind of thing that's going to happen to tuco Mm -hmm. just in general right right (laughs) just because of the kind of character that he is and we accept it and he's the only one in the movie where we actually get a backstory. We actually we get to that point in the movie where he, he reunites with the brother uh, violently, <laughs> and but but we actually hear a little bit about what his life was before the beginning of the movie. You know, so I, th- I feel like the movie is definitely trying to de- definitely aware of how fascinating and good a character he is. Yeah. He's very much a foil. Uh, that's a very good point. In that, uh, he's the only character of the three that we get any kind of backstory for, and we get a ton of backstory. We get his full crazy Mexican name, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, it's uh, Tuco Benedicto Pacifico Juan Maria Ramirez. There you go. <laughs> and Blondie even says, "Known as the Rat." <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, his brother, Father Ramirez, we learn about their family and about how they grew up together and, and this and that. And uh, it's, a, it's clearly set up as a direct foil and parallel uh, 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 to differentiate him from the man with no name. And uh, like I say, uh, Blondie and, and uh, Angel Eyes, neither one of them ha- have... Uh, much of a backstory and they're kind of two sides of the same coin. And I think we're, we're meant to understand that, that their backstory doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where they came from, what they did before. Um, They've wiped that away. And yet for, for uh, Tuco, his backstory does matter. He really is kind of always, um, circling back to his family. He is, he is going to connect with his brother again. And we get the feeling that, uh, well, in fact, later, a little later on, we learn that Blondie basically has no family and that he's never going to have that connection that Tuco has. Right. And, and, and what we learn about Tuco gives us like a, almost a psychological insight into him that we don't get with anybody else. Uh, you know, we, because he lies about the interaction that he yeah. had with his brother to the man with no name yeah. because he 
because presumably he cares about how other people perceive him. I mean, that that's just a that's a huge psychological fact about someone, you know. Yeah. You'd think you he he seems like someone who wouldn't care what the man with no name thinks of him or what anyone thinks of him. But it turns out he he wants him to think that he had this sort of idyllic relationship with his brother and when the opposite is true. So it's this, it's this, it, I mean, that's, that's some really, really deep stuff. You know, why, why would someone do that? Um, but we don't, we don't see that kind of, uh, psychology with, with some of the other characters. And it's fascinating too, the fact that he lies about that, you know? Yeah. The other two characters are much more upfront about what they're doing and what they want. I mean, he's, uh, Angel Lies basically admits that he's going to kill uh, Stevens at the beginning. And then before he kills Baker, he, he essentially tells him, you know, he offered me money. I think he meant for me to kill you. So I'm going to do that now. Right. <laughs> he's a very straightforward guy. Right. <laughs> uh, although he is, uh, you know, in disguise later on at the uh, uh, at the prison camp. Sure. He's he's obviously pulling a scam there. Well, and he he gets called on it by the commandant, who's another one who's at death's door. You know, that's right. Yeah, another cripple, basically. Yeah. yeah. This looks like almost, if I may say, this looks like a Caravaggio painting, almost. Uh, these old Italian masters who have these, you know, paintings where it takes place in a in a barn and it looks kind of like this and there's monks doing stuff and it's got that lighting and you know, you mentioned Goya. He was influenced by Goya. You know, it's that, that sort of look that these deep Browns and the shadows is very picturesque. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the staging and the lighting and everything is, is meant to uh, uh, echo some of those, some of those things. He's obviously aping um, uh, what's his name? Brady, uh, in some of the Civil War photos and, and almost recreating some scenes uh, from those as well. Sure. Yeah, if you just search uh, Google Images for Goya, you'll find some some fascinating images uh, set in prisons and uh, during war situations where there's some clear echoes. Mm. particularly of this mission yeah yeah this is another one of those locations that the movie gets where it's just like my gosh this is the perfect <laughs> imagine you're the location scout you know it's like oh this is the perfect place yeah i don't know how much they built and how much they they found because that scene at the beginning they built, they built that little town out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And, um, on the commentary, they talk about how, uh, uh, some of the crew thought this is crazy. Why, why is this being built in the middle of nowhere? But then when, um, Leone saw it, he just went, Oh my God, this is so awesome. I can shoot right. all the way around the thing. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, in, in some Western movies, some of the stuff they build is, really really convincing <laughs> you know i mean mccabe and mrs miller the the altman picture they built almost everything and it really is really looks like period um so they can 
and you know perhaps they built a lot of this stuff and i mean it just looks so right you know I think that uh, I mean a lot of uh, ghost towns and stuff like that were still standing in the old west in the in the fifties and, and sixties. So um, I think there was a lot of uh, traditional uh, craftsmanship that was still available to people. They still knew how to do that stuff and how to make it look right and mm. uh, build it essentially build, just build it the same way and 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 let it weather for a while and uh, it would look right. So I don't know that that's true today. I think. You'd have to, you know, you'd end up with a lot of, uh, of uh, blue screen work, even on a Western, that you, theoretically, you could build. Mm-hmm. This makeup on Eastwood's face works a lot better when we're not in close-up. Yeah, uh, this is the, the same sort of thing that you find in, um, oh, uh, uh, Dario Argento movies and stuff like that. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not very good uh, face makeup. When we're a distance away, like when we were in the desert and we were shooting him from a medium distance, that was a little bit better because it, it I don't know, it just looked better. But uh, close up like that, you can see the brush strokes, definitely. Yeah, I don't know what they did. It looks like a wax appliance or something as opposed to, uh, as opposed to uh, latex or something that we would use in the U.S., they just took a glue gun to him, maybe. Yeah, just about. Yeah. <laughs> this is a nice scene where he, he first tries to tell Blondie that he's dying. That you should yeah. tell me the, if I if I were in your position. Yeah. So uh, funny. <laughs> <laughs> Eli Wallach plays him. He plays the character just, you know, just comedically enough to where he doesn't become an absolute. It, it, this this doesn't become farcical, you know. We always believe that this is just a an eccentric person, but not. It, it never becomes a a circus act with Tuco. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's something that kind of has been missing in the previous two films because uh, uh, we didn't have much of a uh, of a comic relief element. Mm-hmm. And he absolutely steals the film because of it. Mm-hmm. It's, a, I mean, the fact that he thinks Blondie's going to fall for these tricks that he pulls—he <laughs> should—he should know better that you know. But they're all pretty smart. But Tuco is, I think, too too arrogant sometimes. He thinks people is going to fall. Who's going to fall for this? Maybe he thinks he's got heat stroke or something, and his his faculties aren't what they should be. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. He's going to take, it's like taking advantage of someone when they're drunk, you know? I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, well, somebody... I think it's part part, sorry, but part of it yeah. is that I think he's not a particularly intelligent character and that he would fall for this because he actually does kind of take people at face value. <laughs> yeah, right. This is, this is what I would fall for. So, <laughs> yeah. Now, anytime you're in a movie and someone tells you someone's laying in a bed and they tell you come closer, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> because that happens, or it's like Bugs Bunny saying, uh, telling Elmer Fudd, you know, I want to tell you a secret, and Fudd leans in, and Bugs Bunny takes a gigantic mallet and just bashes him in the head. Yeah, you know, you know that's coming, Elmer. It's fascinating. This is like a full five minutes 
mm-hmm. the, of this scene, and essentially nothing happens in, in, it, in it. Tuco doesn't learn anything. They don't make a pact even. Um, he just fails to convince Blondie to tell him the answer. Right. That's true. Yeah, the, the nothing nothing comes of that initial. You could you could have just brought you could have just cut to this interaction here because this is a little bit more what we're going to do next. Right. Normally, you would you would at least figure that at the end of that scene is the two of them making a pact to go after the gold together. But we mm-hmm. don't get that. We don't really even get it spoken so much here. Although it's kind of now taken for granted by this by the end of this sequence. Yeah, I mean, in terms of storytelling, David Mamet would would not like this movie uh, because it 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 doesn't. Every scene does not have that arrow pointing to the next scene. You know, <laughs> this is the anti Mamet. That's for sure. It, it really is. I mean, Mamet is all about character dialogue and and uh, that, mm-hmm. that interaction, verbal interaction. Is there is there a single scene in a Mammoth film where uh, the characters just stare at each other? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Yeah. Although I think he would he would love Tuco in a lot of ways. Yeah. No. Yeah. Anybody this coarse. <laughs> the actor playing his brother is really good, and I I think that I think he's really good. I think this whole brother thing. Um, where they, where they sort of trade accusations, and I mean, I'm left feeling like I don't know who's right, you know, because he says, you know, you had a choice to turn into a bandit, and you did, and Tuco says, no, I had two choices. I could have done what you did, or I could have done what I did, and I, I wanted to be my own person, and, you know, who's right here, you know, in this argument, and, and I love that I'm sort of left going, like, oh, I don't, I don't know, they both make a good point, you know? It, it is a really good scene because of that, yeah, and and it's important that it be that, that way, because, again, we're, we're just revealing Tuco's backstory, we, he doesn't get anything out of this that moves the story along, mm-hmm. um, but it just tells us more about uh, what kind of a character he is. And you would think if you're going to do that, if you're going to have these long scenes where all we get is what kind of a character Tuco is, then at the, you would expect at the end for Tuco's character to be a huge lever or, or a fulcrum on which the, the conclusion of the film ends, but it's not, he, he hardly plays. <laughs> he's, he's essentially taken out of all of the decision making and his character is, um, is of no importance because Blondie takes over, takes takes out his gun, his, uh, uh, his cartridges from his gun. So he doesn't even actually participate in the shootout. Right. And instead he's forced to just, uh, to, to just, uh, uh, dig. Um, it's a really interesting thing to do. And I, I'm not sure I don't dislike it, but I'm trying to figure out, well, what is the mechanics then of the purpose of this? Cause it, you're right. This is, this goes against every rule of screenwriting. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> if you're, this if you're going to bring necessary. in father Ramirez and have this relationship be important mm-hmm. so that we learn about the character, then that should come to something. 
or it would maybe result in some sort of change in Tuco where he realizes something or he tries to change how he's living, you know, some, something. We learn something about the man with no name here, though. We learn something about Blondie because ah. he he witnesses this yep. and he and he doesn't say anything. He he, he out of out, I mean, what would you call that? Out of compassion? Out of he doesn't want to embarrass Tuco, or he just wants to? He just offers him that cigar. You know, it, it's it's that is one of the acts of mercy that they show each other at various times. You're right. Oh. You're right. Almost the entire purpose for that scene is for that moment for Blondie Mm -hmm. to show that Blondie actually has a bit of compassion here in this moment with the once we get on the uh, uh, the ambulance again so that he has a reason to pity Tuco. I think you've hit it on the head. Yeah, this is this is my favorite. Eli Wallach scene, but what a loss, Eli Wallach. I mean, I mean, he lived a long life. Well, yeah, ninety-eight. <laughs> but, Good riddance but, but, I mean, to bad rubbish. <laughs> but but he was he was in movies till the end. He was in Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps. Right, he yeah. was he was he was in Mystic River yeah. for Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Um, but this is my favorite. Oh, gosh, that's scene. right. Yeah, he worked yeah. for Clint Eastwood. I, I didn't realize that. That's, yeah, that's a good point. It, yeah, Clint, Clint Eastwood brought him back to reunite with him, and he made him the grocer or the store clerk yeah. in Mystic River. Yeah. But this, I, I love what he does here. You know, this sort of he's 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 trying to he's lying he's lying about his his he's saying that his brother accepts him and loves him, and it's not true and admires and, him. Yeah. Yes, and Blondie knows it isn't true, and but but Tuco is very good in a way, very good at telling this lie and it's just this it's it's this wonderful character moment that has been set up pretty richly but we don't get very many character moments like this and i love when eastwood the smallest little bit of a smile cracks on the man with no name that's really it's really something you see the look that tuco gives him there like he you buying this yeah (laughs) he kind of realizes that uh, his story is not uh going over as in the way that he thought it would or hoped it would. Well, look, because obviously someone who is a priest is not going to approve of, of someone who's a bandito uh, being of his brother doing, you know, committing crimes and, and running around in this way, you know, obviously, (laughs) obviously someone, I mean, but that's why it, it was so shocking too, that the brother slapped him, you know, you don't see monks beating people up very much. And in that, moment as they both smile mm-hmm. we're we're given to understand that they have now essentially made their pact to finish this together um and that actually does come back when uh blondie abandons angel eyes and his gang and goes and sides with tuco and they go and kill angel eyes's gang right and in that respect i think that that uh, we've we've sort of answered my question about what what in the world is that scene doing for us and it's and it's <laughs> this that they've actually made a pact together that they are going to keep and it's largely for Blondie's part of the story even though they immediately go back to bickering <laughs> yeah I mean they're all like oil and water I mean nobody's going to get along I mean they've they've written these characters in such a way where there's no way they're going to get along. Now this is my fa- one, of, without exaggeration, one of my favorite gags in a movie. <laughs> That's great. 
isn't this great? I mean, he he starts. I mean, look at it. He's going to start cheering. Yay, yay! The Confederacy. You know. Well, it, it echoes the uh, the hotel keeper earlier, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. He was doing the same thing. Yeah. If these were, if they knew that these were Union soldiers, they would be stripping off their uniforms as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah. um, but instead, he's essentially doing exactly what he saw the uh, the innkeeper do. He doesn't even know the name of, of uh, Robert E. Lee. <laughs> yes, that's that, right. That, that's how removed. I mean, that, you see what I mean? Like, that's how. Re, well, this is what you were saying before. This is how much they don't care about what's going on in these larger, larger concerns with the war. I mean, was there any more f- besides maybe Lincoln and Jefferson Davis? Were there people who were much more famous than Robert E. Lee and and General Grant at the time? I don't I don't think so. I mean, they they, 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 they were very, very famous. Because there was this war, <laughs> you know. It's apparently a gag uh, that comes from an Ambrose Bierce uh, uh, story from the Civil War. These, uh, you're kidding. That's what they say in the commentary. Um, th- this idea that uh, Union soldiers in bl- in their blue uniforms, uh, covered with dust from the road, uh, looked like uh, Confederate soldiers. I think I heard Richard Schickel say that on the commentary years ago and probably just forgot it. Uh, but, uh, but it's a brilliant, if Ambrose Bierce came up with it, that's a brilliant thing. I mean, yeah, he wrote uh, red badge of wonderful. courage, I think among others. No, th- no, that was Stephen Crane. Oh I yeah, think. that's right. You're right. I'm oh, sorry. Um, Bierce wrote, uh, Oh, I can't even remember, but it, I mean, the point is that, that that's really just a, a wonderful little, because I guess they would look that way if they were covered in dust and you could easily, Confuse them. <laughs> but it, and it totally works on us, uh, the audience, because we saw it happen earlier with the hotel. And yeah. now we're seeing it, uh, you know, we, we would think, oh, maybe they're just going to pass right by and uh, uh, instead <laughs> get captured. And the film takes yet another huge turn 30 minutes after the initial turn. I, yeah. And we're still, we're still, you know, I mean, you can talk about screenwriting, no-nos and stuff. I mean, we're, we're constantly meeting new characters two hours in, two and a half hours in. <laughs> we're, we're sort of meeting new people. Uh, yes, you're, you're right. I mean, we saw Father Ramirez there for uh, just one scene or so. We're going to see this uh, uh, commandant uh, for just a couple of scenes. And, uh-huh. and yet somehow it's just the right amount of bringing them in, giving them something to do, and then and then fading them out. And uh, it's okay if some of them, like the sergeant here is going to play a, a, a slightly larger role. He's going to come back later. And the, the one bounty hunter from the beginning comes back later. It, it kind of keeps us guessing. We, we're surprised when, when those characters come back. Um, but we're not surprised. We're not surprised that the, that father Ramirez never comes back. You know, he, he doesn't, it doesn't feel like the film is missing him. Mm-hmm. The actor who plays Wallace here, the, the heavy is uh, sort of a cross between Peter Ustinov and Ernest Hemingway. You know, he's, <laughs> he's, I mean, he, he's very scary looking. I mean, you would do what you're, you were told if you, <laughs> if he told you, you know, uh, Mario Briga is his name and he appears in, uh, for a few dollars more, uh, as well. Really? Oh, wow. Well, he's great. He's fantastic. He's a member of, uh, of, uh, Indio's gang. Yeah. In fact, yeah. in fact, uh, Luigi Pastilli, who plays uh, Father Ramirez, the brother, he is also a member of Indio's gang in the previous film. 
Oh. Again, a little a little smile from Angel Eyes. And we're going to get a little smile here from Blondie, too, when he sort of backtalks him. Uh, he says, I like Big Mac. He's saying it right now. That's right. But Blondie's going to sort of laugh to himself because, you know, Tuco has brass balls. And I, I like the little gag there, too, where they're calling out uh, for for uh, uh, Bill Carson and uh, Blondie, real, Blondie realizes what's going on. Oh, like, oh, uh, 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 Angel Eyes is here. Uh, you better answer to the name Bill Carson. <laughs> 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 it's Tuco. Right, right. It's like whatever's going to happen, I want it to happen to you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> hey, you better you better say Bill Carson. You better say you're Bill Carson. And of course, Tuco is just dumb enough that he's wearing the the eye patch from Bill right. Carson for no reason. Like, why would he do that? Right. Yeah, that that is a hilarious. There, there's there, there's so many hilarious moments in this movie. <laughs> you know, just now, this is this is sort of a a moral figure. Uh, this this commandant, right? I mean, he he has his he has his ethics in order in a way that uh, maybe some of these other characters don't. And he's and he's going to use his power. He, this is one person in power who's going to use his power to say, "Hey, listen, I know you're basically a crook." And I don't want you torturing people. You know, basic stuff. <laughs> and uh, he sort of becomes this sort of uh, force for good, even though nobody heeds what he says. Yeah, I like, too, how he's used... Um, he actually says, I know you've got scum around here who've, who are, you know, are accepting your stolen goods and everything. So that sets up the idea that, that Angel Eyes... We don't. How in the world he got into this situation? I don't know. He must have killed somebody and is impersonating him or something. Um, but he he's only doing this temporarily, maybe because he's kind of halfway given up finding uh, Bill Carson. Um, but he's got this other plan. These other guys outside that he's running this uh, deal with, and therefore yeah. when we when we hook up with him again later, it's no surprise. But I think our our commandant here is kind of. Uh, his purpose in the film is to, because this is this situation is ho- so horrible. It's based on Andersonville uh, POW camp in in uh, uh, the Civil War. Uh, even the look of it is um, that I think his his purpose is to show us that no, no, not everybody was evil. These people weren't all evil. It's somebody like Angel Eyes who was perpetrating these horrible atrocities. Because there's a there's a uh, uh, a Nazi concentration camp aspect to it, even. Oh, yeah. yeah. We have echoes. Uh, this isn't just about the American Civil War. It's about war in general and, and what can happen and the, the atrocities that can happen. Uh, and uh, Angel Eyes isn't doing these things because of the fog of war. He's doing them for personal profit and because he's a little bit sadistic, too. Right, yes. he's Yeah, he's actually not doing his job, which was the the defense of so many Nazis. Uh, I was right. just doing my job. I think even the defense of uh, the, the, the people who ran Andersonville was largely, look, we didn't have enough people and we didn't have enough food. So we had to be brutal or we would have been uh, run over by the, by the uh, prisoners, ah. which is not a very good defense, but it's at least uh, 
an attempt to explain that they are sadistic uh, psychopaths committing these atrocities on purpose. So when Angel Eyes gives that excuse to the commandant, it's sort of half-hearted, right? He doesn't, that, that's not, that, that might be why some other people here are doing sadistic things, but <laughs> he's, he's fundamentally sadistic in a way. <laughs> you know, that's only part of the reason for him. Yeah, right. Yeah, he has a whole, I mean, the, the fact that he's created this sits the system by which music is played so that it covers the beating that he's giving someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That speaks to a deep, you know, planned systemic uh, 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 war crime. <laughs> yeah. On his part. Yeah. He's only wearing a sergeant's uniform too. It, it, it's kind of odd that he would essentially be in charge at this point. Well, is it because the commandant is is out of commission for a little while with his gangrene? Is that why this these other people had to step up? Or uh, uh, well, uh, yes, obviously they're shorthanded, I guess. Right. The, the commandant is dying because he's not going to survive that that gangrene. They don't have, uh, they don't have the, the, the the you know medicine to do it. But he still should have some officers to take over. He, he shouldn't rely on a sergeant. Ah, but I don't know. Given the circumstances, maybe he's also short on other, you know, lieutenants and 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 captains and whatnot. You don't see this enough in movies uh, where we just sort of hang back with the camera and watch him eat and talk, and <laughs> actually, and the characters actually eat. I, I, it's tough to shoot because you know you have to do multiple. It takes and how many times can you eat uh, whatever that stew is? And and Eli Wallach eats a lot of it. Look <laughs> at him. I mean, I mean, I mean it's... <laughs> yeah, this is the second time in the movie where they're eating something that looks absolutely unappetizing. I mean, it's some some sort of stew that is just uh, it looks like it's got clumps of everything in it. And he, yeah, it's and it's funny when he's eating it from too that that weird platter, and he's got this giant spoon. It's really strange. Yeah, it's interesting too how uh, you know Angel Eyes is is feeding him and and, and giving him a bottle even and and, and so on, um, but he's only doing it to get as much information as he can by playing the nice guy, even right. though and it's it's. It's clear even to the audience that the next step is, okay, now I have him tortured until I get the rest of the information that I can get that I couldn't get by being nice. Right. right. Now, now would, would, uh, John, you and Dick Cheney consider this torture or would this be enhanced (laughs) technique? What we're going to see here. Enhanced interrogation technique. Yeah. Would, would this be, I mean, I think they would uh, they would agree that um, it does not do grievous bodily harm uh, and permanent <laughs> damage to organs, and therefore it passes muster with them. Right, right, right. I mean, it, it becomes a little bit of an anti-torture uh, bent to the movie, which you know, uh, because we see the other we, the other victims of this kind of torture. Because one of the people in the yard, I think one of the musicians, says to Blondie, 
yeah, we've all gotten that kind of treatment. Yep. And I think, I think he, I think by we all, I, does he mean the guys in the band or so he means some population of people there. And so they all know what's going on. And then you see their faces because they've had the same thing done to them. You know, it's very, very sort of moving in a way. Yeah. I have to imagine that, uh, well, it's certainly more than just the band, but, uh, it can't be every prisoner in that. It means you just be busy beating people, uh, uh, night and day, but some some group of them maybe the maybe the guys in the band kind of got it worse than the others because they have to they had to be beaten into submission before they would agree to the scheme of playing music to cover the beatings sure sure although i think i would demand uh, some more rousing music than this this is a very <laughs> not, it's not a good right. song for covering a beating right i guess yeah, within the story, I mean, you would have them play a, a, a march or something, but uh, something loud, anything loud, and, you know, not, not something so soft and slow, but in the movie, I guess it works as a kind of, um, it's this very sweet-sounding, elegiac, or, or very sort of melancholy music, and it, it's being contrasted with such violence. Thematically, yeah, in the film, it's a, it's a brilliant choice. Just everything that happens here. I mean, the guy, to the, the the one sergeant saying, you know, more feeling, uh, and yet mm-hmm. they, you know they're racked with emotion. Yeah, they they've got nothing but feeling. It's just not the the one he wants. We, we're watching this with the sound off, but I mean, Ennio Morricone is, I mean, such a big part of this movie i mean the, it's it's not just that main theme it's all these little um cues that he has that come back um not so much in this scene but i mean just the music in this movie is just it's it's sort of the film is scored in this very bravura kind of way very emphatic way it's fascinating to me because he uses such a variety of uh, instruments in that I mean, there are little there are moments when it sounds kind of like you know bird calls and uh, and rattles and just every kind of instrument you know jangling chains or 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 something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fascinating the variety of instrumentation he uses. Yeah, yeah, all these weird little sounds. We're getting this close up here, and I think you can see him tearing up a little bit. Yeah. Hmm. And so we've seen, we've seen in this movie Confederate soldiers behaving atrociously, and we've also seen Union soldiers behaving atrociously, right? Because uh, weren't those Confederates at the beginning who treated the woman badly? Um, I yeah, I forget. He he identified them as the Seventh Cavalry, but yeah, I forget if they were yeah. Union or. I don't remember either, but Confederate. This certainly makes the Union look worse, just just from these scenes, obviously. But uh, I think um, we see later on it's the Union soldiers they fall in with that they have sympathy for. That the the the, the uh, captain, the drunk captain who gets killed uh, at the bridge. Um, the, the the film certainly doesn't play favorites. You're right. 
I remember. In The Searchers, I think John Wayne's character, Ethan, was a confederate. I believe that is the case, yeah. Okay. Because some movies do sort of have, you know, they'll have the main character be a confederate or a union. And uh, I don't know if that's taking sides, but some sometimes you do see that. But here it's just everybody's kind of a victim of war. I think that it's a it's a comment on John Wayne's character in that film um, because it's a it's a shorthand way of saying, you know, of giving him a background. Right. This is mm-hmm. the thing that he just lived through, and this is the situation that he's in. He's been beaten down by the war. Mm. This is a. I, I really, really like this interaction, and there's even a little bit of, of, sort of a funny moment in it when he when they look at each other when Blondie has the 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 pistol. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's just this. The awkwardness of uh, neither one of us wants to be a teammate, but we're going to be teammates now. I think that that Angel Eyes respects Blondie in a way that he'll never respect Tuco. And I think that he, if, I'm not so sure that, that he really thinks that he couldn't have gotten the information out of Blondie, but I think that he kind of didn't want to, you know? It's a mm-hmm. it's a brutal thing. It's difficult, and um, it would certainly ruin his chances of of making him into any kind of a partner. Um, and therefore, he'll co-opt him, and maybe we'll kind of be friends. <laughs> it's it's almost in in a way. It's almost a that scene that we sometimes get in uh, 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 these action films. Uh, where the bad guy says, you are not so different, you and I. Right. Uh, I've checked, and yes, uh, Aaron, or Ethan Edwards, uh, the John Wayne character from uh, The Searchers, fought for the Confederacy. Mm. And he comes in, I think, if I remember correctly, he comes in with his uniform at the very beginning and, and, and gives it to someone. That's right, yeah. That's right. That's an interesting film. I, I, I yeah, I'm, I've been tempted to do a commentary for that film as well. Yeah, that's that's uh, very different from this kind of film. But but uh, I mean, that's that's such a great. Um... I if I had to pick one of John Wayne's films that was most similar to this, I would probably say the Sur- the Searchers. Uh, but it is different, to be sure, because yeah, he's essentially an antihero in that in that film. Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, there are definitely similarities. Yeah, I, I think he, yeah, he's a total anti-hero. Everything that happens with this this train stuff, there there are some parts that sag a little bit. The part where he he finds him sleeping and he sees him going for the key that, uh, you know, that that seems kind of stock. But um, there's there's a, all that stuff that ha- all this stuff that happens when they're handcuffed together is just great. Uh, most of it. Um, what Tuco says to the to the cripple there is pretty great because he's saying, you know, what, are you fighting for yourself or I'm, you know, he's living a life where he's fighting for himself, you know. He gets something out of it if he gets maimed or he, he, the risks he takes come with rewards for him, not for other people. Uh, so he's right. 
the traditional argument for the soldier is that you are fighting for other people uh, in an altruistic sort of way, and, and you're, you trust that you are following the right government. And it, this is a it, Tuco's comment is a kind of a cynical comment that um, that at least in this fight, maybe there is no what right or wrong, and maybe no winner either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he rejects the higher calling, just like he rejected the priesthood, you know. Exactly, yeah, very good point. Yeah, you're right. I mean, he's not, he's, he's, he's not going to buy in any, anybody's uh, s- script. Uh, I guess that's one thing that all, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all three of them have in common, right? They're, they are uh, not not going to be on anybody's team if they don't have to they're going to they're going to be in it for themselves right another aspect that i think makes them anti-heroes at least the the couple of them anyway um that we can admire and yet maybe aren't supposed to actually emulate but at the same time we also recognize that we're it, the film is clearly not endorsing uh the the soldiers either and and that aspect Mm-hmm. So, again, like a noir, it's kind of not giving us any real good guys to hold on to. This is another of the reinserted scenes. Previously, uh, we jumped past this, and, and we didn't get a good understanding of where uh, Angel Eyes's, uh, uh gang came from but i don't think this is a very necessary scene and it's it's kind of confusing i mean why in the world would angel eyes not care that one of his guys got shot and why would he have Mm -hmm. them sneaking around anyway i'm i'm watching i don't know how it looks on your blu-ray i'm watching it on dvd and it doesn't look very good either um it looks kind of dim um you know obviously they they redid everything when they redid the film but it eh, looks a little looks a little wonky it looks very good on blu-ray but it's it's probably too uh bright and it's too obviously uh shot day for night it's pretty clear Mm. that this is not actually shot at nighttime maybe if they had graded it to be more blue it would have uh, played better but uh it really looks like they're just under a umbrella in the afternoon yeah that's probably it I would have expected us to spend more time with uh, Blondie and Angel Eyes in this part of the film because ostensibly we have taken Tuco out of the picture. I mean, that's what we're trying to, that's what the filmmaker is trying to tell us is happening. And instead, we really stick pretty close by him, even in scenes that don't really play all that well because you know like you say he goes for the gun and it comes to nothing um and he, he has to try this lame trick in order to escape mm-hmm. but i i think that i i think that sergio leone was his thought is tuco is so important as a character at this point that it it we have to pay attention to all th- three of the main characters all the time we had Angel Eyes leave the film for quite a while because he was off looking for Bill Carson and we knew that he wasn't going to find Bill Carson. Um, 
and it was okay when he came back, but it's not okay for Tuco to go away. Right. I'm not sure that uh, Blondie and Angel Eyes and the uh, the gang members could hold up the film by themselves. There's not much very interesting going on between them either. Right. The whole idea of uh, he, he can't take a leak while he's being watched is, is pretty funny that it's in the movie. <laughs> yeah. It's as old as Methuselah, I guess, <laughs> that, that phenomenon. And it worked, too. You know, that's what's so great. <laughs> it worked. He got the guy to turn around and, you know. Yeah, Wallace is just dumb enough to actually fall for that. It makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now this, he first tries to break it with the gun, and that that it would not be how I tried to, you know. The gun has apparently been broken in the fall because he tried to shoot it first. Right. So it's worthless at this point. Another great little little thing in the movie where he severs it using a oncoming train. I mean, that's pretty. That that would be. I mean, it's sort of plausible, right? Yeah, maybe someone would do that. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, people put coins on uh, uh, railroad tracks and mm-hmm. in order to see them get squashed and everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, this this would definitely work because I I think they it's all they practically do it for real. I think. <laughs> It's the thing <laughs> because Eli right. Wallach really is right here by this train, really in a, in a very precarious situation where uh, they realized uh, uh, he, he realized later he could have been killed. Yeah. He mentions that uh, there's a piece of the train that could have hit him uh, like a step yep. on the train. You see the yeah. iron steps go right by his head. Uh huh. I guess that's a dummy under the train. Uh, no, that's a real guy. No, <laughs> it's a stunt man. They didn't care. <laughs> Boy, what a great, what a great actor. <laughs> so I guess he kills two birds with one stone, right? He he gets to kill Wallace that because Wallace was just unconscious, right? So he gets to kill him, uh, or maybe maybe I don't think Wallace was already dead from the fall. Uh, I don't think it matters. Yeah, it, yeah, he might he have kills been. him anyway. Mm-hmm. There's an aspect there. We've got a little, um, a little uh, uh, fast action uh, as the train went away. There's an mm-hmm. aspect of it that uh, reminded me a bit of a, a Buster Keaton moment. That whole gag, you know, is kind of a Buster Keaton gag. I don't think that that gag is actually in the general, the the, the Buster Keaton film with the uh, Civil War, uh, you know, and, and the train, but uh, it feels kind of like that. Mm-hmm. This is pretty horrifying. I mean, you just you just pull over the side of the road for a minute, execute this guy, right? We got the pine box. Yeah, he's wearing a sign. It's, one wonders why they waited so long. Uh, they made him march into this town before they shot him. I, I, is, I, maybe this is a churchyard and they're going to bury him right here, maybe? Yeah. Well, you want to get some use out of your sign. Too. I mean, you got that kind of signage. You want <laughs> you want someone to wear it for a while. You know, Can you read the like, sign? I, I'm not sure what, this, what, he, what he was being accused of. I don't know. I mean, well, I mean, uh, in in uh, you know, two thousand years ago in Palestine, they they had that sign that said "King of the Jews." I mean, they needed to use it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, we can use this. Finally. <laughs> 
can you believe it? This guy makes us use, <laughs> makes it possible for us to use this. So we're in another ruined city. This would have been, boy, in 1966, this this still would have been reminiscent of parts of Europe, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, I'm not so sure that there were American cities that got this level of, of uh, shelling, or, you know, American frontier towns that got this level of shelling, uh, because the the soldiers largely fought each other. They didn't fight house to house. And they sort of, it was sort of a battlefield type war, right? Where you had big, big areas where they would do the fighting, right? Yeah, Mostly. especially in the, in the Southwest where you've got large open spaces. So you didn't have to fight house to house, but I suppose it's quite possible that they burned down a town at one point. Sure. Sure. Well, there was that, the, uh, uh, one that's dramatized in uh, Gone with the Wind, right? That's the burning of Atlanta. Yeah, that's the that's the famous one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I guess if you had a had to fight a war and you and you have these cannons, right? I mean, you would want you wouldn't want to would you want to fire you'd want to fire them at large groups of people, right? Because you don't want to waste too many uh, of your cannon balls uh, shooting at. A building, if you're not sure how many people are in it, or I don't know. I don't know how war works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly the idea was that they would use it against uh, fortifications as well as against masses of troops. But uh, 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 yeah, you're right. I, I don't know how practical it is to shoot it at houses. Mm-hmm. I know this sort of feels like it got some shelling, but it also mainly burnt down most yeah. of the town. We see a lot of smoke and fire damage, I think. Here we have the bounty hunter. He's lost an arm. He's become a cripple himself. Um, and, uh, but he's back. Yeah. It's a great detail. Huh. They, they could have made him a little bit more. I mean, the actor they got to play him sort of looks like, um, he, he might play, you know, the druggist on father knows best, you know, some harmless character. He, they could have made him more menacing of an actor. Maybe I don't, I'm not sure why they, he's a small guy, but I think in terms of his face, I, I, I think he's great. I mean, he opens the film. I think it, his craggy right. face is about as uh, expressive as the landscape. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, he's, I agree that he's not a very menacing character really. No, I mean uh, Tuco looks like a much much more capable tough guy, and so uh, you don't really. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe the point is that. Well, the point is that he is a he is a little he's a, he is a little bit inept because this is going to be the second time that Tuco gets the best of him. This time, killing him, right? I yeah, mean, true. I mean this this guy this guy can't uh, isn't a very good bounty, but I guess the point is that Tuco is very good. At not being caught. Yes. So this whole time, does Tuco hear him? Tuco knows he's coming and is getting ready. I don't think so. Um, but there, there has to be a moment when he stops playing in the water there because he seems to be playing with both hands in the water there. Um, and and uh, but and now you can see he's got his one hand under the water or under yeah. under the soap at least. Uh. We're really tight on that face, too. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
His name is Al Moloch, and he's actually from Canada. Huh. I had sort of assumed that he was uh, Italian or Spanish, but uh, no. Now, the, the, the line Tuco gives, of course, when you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. He's going to give it here. Um, that's sort of a great instruction to other movies, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you're you're going you're gonna to get taken out by the hero if you lecture the hero. I, I, there's this movie that came out recently um, called Blue Ruin where they, they have a, a situation in that movie where something along those lines takes place. And, and you think the movie is going to subvert that, you know, and kind of do that kind of comment on it. But ah, they end up doing the same damn, same damn trope. You know? uh, but that is a very funny line that he gets. And, and it's, again, it's Tuco being very funny, you know, like very lively. I love these sets. I love the idea that uh, Angel Eyes has uh, found a hotel room, and he doesn't choose one that's intact. He chooses one with a big hole in the side of it <laughs> <laughs> for some reason. Well, we, we decorate based on our personality. and <laughs> That's right, yes. He has a hole in his heart. Um, this, is, this is the one I want. So this, is, this, this whole sequence is interesting because uh, uh, Blondie is here against his will. Basically, he's been given these clothes by by the way, which is slowly dressing him like the man with no name in the earlier two films. Mm. Um, and uh, he hears Tuco's gun, and he recognizes the sound of the gun, and that's why he goes looking for him. Right, and betrays Angel Eyes, and, and uh, uh, but so it underscores or it raises the question: How? You know, isn't it amazing coincidence that Tuco is in this same town? I think we could have done with a a little scene somehow that made it a little clearer that Tuco and Angel Eyes both know that they have to go to Sad Hill, and therefore they happen to stop in the same town on the way to Sad Hill because it's on the road. I mean, right. that just makes sense. But um, we could have had one brief little line there. Um, somewhere along the lines, and uh, I, I think had a more a, a clearer uh, storyline in that respect, and and I'm not sure why um, Leone doesn't do that because he does it everywhere else. He, I mean, he draws things out in great detail in, in other places. Right. No, that's true. This is a nice moment. Blondie has Tuco, he's basically gotten the drop on Tuco, and very similarly to the other sequence where Tuco explains, you know, some people come in through the door, some people come in through the window. Um, and yet he is actually here to fulfill their deal. That's right, yeah. So he he actually has a bit of an arc, um, and I'm not sure that Tuco has much of an arc. Is Tuco different at the end of this film than he is from the beginning? Well, I don't think he... No, I don't think he has experiences that change anything about him. Um, or I don't think his experiences change anything about him. Uh, what, what, is, what is Blondie's arc? I mean, what, specifically, I mean, what... Well, specifically at the beginning of the film, he, he doesn't care about Tuco and he, and he is a loner. And by the end of the film, or at least 
uh, by the climax of the film, he has um, teamed up on purpose with Tuco in a in a genuine friendship. Mm. And of course, he abandons him at the very end. So I'm not sure, um, you know, how deep that arc really goes. But um, he, he has specifically chosen to uh, to avoid the cycle of revenge that he and Tuco had been in. Yeah, I guess so. And I guess, you know, he also, when he leaves Tuco at the end, he does leave him with his share of the money. And so I guess he goes from someone who wants it all for himself to <laughs> is willing to uh, give someone else a share, you know, because in the beginning, all these guys want all the money for themselves. And it's only through uh, necessity that they decide to, well, we'll split it this way or that way, you know. Right. At the beginning of the deal, it's all we'll spit it up squarely. But uh, at the end, it's only Blondie who actually leaves Tuco with his half of the money, which is something which is obviously the exact opposite of what he had done earlier in the film, which is leave him in the desert with no money. Mm -hmm. So that shows that he has grown as a character, I suppose. I think that Tuco grows also, but in a, I think in a much less definable way. Definitely the 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 running into the into the uh, the what's his name Wallace and the being tortured seems to. I, I mean that would have to change somebody, but who knows? Maybe he was tortured before. <laughs> I like this shootout. I, I love this stuff. That carbine that that uh, he just fired was a really interesting gun. It's a it's essentially a rifle version of uh, a revolver, and it's actually the same. It's a, it's actually a rifle version of the same revolver that uh, that uh, uh, Angel Eyes carries. It would actually use the same ammunition. Wow, uh, those guns kind of fascinate me. Fascinate me. So you can hold it with one hand, but it's sort of like a, the size of a rifle almost? Well, the idea of a carbine is that it uses the same ammunition as a pistol, so you only have to carry one set of ammunition. Ah. Um, so that that particular gun literally has the same action as the, uh, as the revolver. It just has a, a rifle butt and a much longer, um, much longer uh, barrel. It's a similar weapon to what uh, um, Lee Van Cleef uses in the second film, where he actually has uh, two or three guns with really long barrels um, that are that are basically just long revolvers rather than real rifles. Mm. It's just a weird, interesting another another weird and interesting aspect of the of the gun choices in this movie. Yeah. Whereas most it, most cowboy movies just had the Colt forty five Peacemaker and just you know that that's all that or the and a Henry rifle and that's it. Or the the Winchester seventy six. Right? Uh, yes, I, <laughs> yes. <laughs> For which a movie is named even. Yeah, yeah, it's a good movie. Uh, the uh, this location looks very similar to uh, a location that was. 
I just saw this movie again. That's why the the, the Western uh, two rode together with um, Richard Widmark and Jimmy Stewart. I I mean, it's probably not the same location because they're in, doing this in Europe and the good, the bad, and the ugly. But um, uh, that's with Richard Widmark and uh, James Stewart, and it looks very similar. Just just the these bombed out houses and uh, some of the buildings look the same. The name is Two Road Together. Mm-hmm. That's funny. I don't find it. I probably have the name wrong. <clears throat> it sounds familiar, though. Oh, no, I find it now. Here it is, 61. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. And it, it, it's not even big in the movie. It's just like this location they pass by. But yeah, that's a really good one. This is an odd moment because um, it's it's a absolute comedy gag. This is something that elsewhere in the film he would have drawn out, but um, it's a really short uh, sequence from them in the town getting that silly message, um, you know, calling them idiots. And then, you know, oh, here we have to cross that, that uh, river. It's It's right down below. Uh, it's right around the corner here. And then they immediately get captured. And then they walk literally like 15 feet. And there's a <laughs> giant army camp. Right, right, right. <laughs> they walk behind this bush. <laughs> like, how did they not notice that? How did they not hear an entire camp full of soldiers? <laughs> you, you think they would have heard uh, people speaking. It's, so, it's a funny yeah. gag, but it's like, yeah, that, that's just that almost really is farce. Yeah, but but it's not played. I mean, they, they, I don't know. It, it, it's it's played off just um, casually enough that the that the audience can chuckle at it without without being outraged. Well, it's it's one of those Leone jokes where he doesn't emphasize it as a joke, yes. but it's sort it's sort of um, it's clearly a joke. And here's yet another character who's coming in. Uh, this late into the movie, we're sort of being introduced, and and he's very important. I mean, for this is a long sequence here, but uh, so we, right. we get him for, for for quite a few little scenes. But um, uh, this is just a, a, a relatively short part of a long movie, uh, but he's very important in it. Yeah, yeah. To the to the overall film, I mean, there's a little bit of a uh, Lieutenant Dan. Here. Yes. With the surliness, right? <clears throat> and the cynicism. He's a drunk. He's tired of the war. He hates the situation that he's in. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, he's glad for the release of death, I think. But especially glad that they blow up the bridge for him. I mean, they, well, they, know, they, uh, they almost do it as a favor to him as much as because they need to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> themselves. Right. Yeah. Totally. Well, I guess that's a very realistic kind of character. It's easy to imagine that people who are in these situations can become this uh, fed up, you know, uh, by by the, I mean, the extreme situation of a war is just. This is the this is the World War One part of the movie, where trenches, the yeah. trenches, and the, the stalemate because both both of these armies want the bridge intact. So they don't destroy it, um, 
but they also can't actually neither one of them can actually capture it from the other so they're stuck mm-hmm. so everybody's just hanging out yeah I mean he leads a charge and a bunch of guys get killed but nothing comes of it because they can't take the bridge and the and the and they the other uh, side can't take it away from them either <laughs> I love the the sort of uh, production design here. I mean, this really look. I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly what this stuff would have looked like, but this all looks very, very, very realistic to me. They clearly must have cut down a, a forest there in Spain in order to do this. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, it's a huge area that that they sort of are in here, you know. And it's um, but they have used all these logs. I mean, they built a whole bridge. In fact, they built two bridges because they screwed up the <clears> first time. Well, they allowed, apparently they allowed someone to press, to depress the button or press the button, however you say it with explosives. They allowed someone to be in charge of the button who was sort of a, sort of not someone who knew what he was doing or, and accidentally pressed the button or something like that. Uh, my understanding is that the, whoever was in charge of giving the command accidentally gave the command or mentioned it. And the guy at the other end didn't understand. It might, like you say, it might have been someone who was given, like, I will allow you to press the button, mayor, or something mm. like that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but they blew up the bridge before the cameras were rolling, and they had to rebuild it. <laughs> so a use mention error may have led to the to the bridge being blown <laughs> up. Yes. That's remarkable in itself, you know, that, I mean, a director, Leone, you know, you're supposed to be in charge of your set. How do you allow someone who, who's that, uh, that idiotic to uh, be in charge? I mean, someone could have gotten killed, you know, someone's too close at that moment. Absolutely. And that was one of Eastwood's problems with these films is that he felt that there wasn't enough uh, attention paid to safety on them. Uh, in mm-hmm. an American film, uh, obviously there would be lots of, uh, um, calls for fire in the hole and, and very, you know, only qualified people would be allowed to operate them and they would have very specific uh, code words and, and, uh, um, for exactly this reason, because A, you don't want to waste all the money, but gosh, you could kill a dozen people if they were in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and even something basic like riding a horse, if you fall off a horse, you can be seriously injured. And there are people on movie sets who are responsible for making sure that people ride the horses safely and the horses don't uh, misbehave or whatever, you know, anything that could get someone falling off a horse. Well, and the, and the, keeps the animals safe too. I mean, obviously at this point, especially in Europe, they weren't paying attention to animal safety, but, uh, um, it was around this time that, uh, um, that became a big deal, and nowadays you see that that you know that famous uh, uh, blurb at the end of the film. You know, no animals were injured or harmed in the making of this movie. Yeah. Well, now if they want to mistreat a horse, they, they get you a CG horse. And well, yeah, today, yeah, a, ni- a nice photo, a nice photo reel, uh, or, and they and they can make it photo reel. You know, and look at Life of Pi, right? Yeah, this there's like that real- great moment in uh, in uh, 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 oh, uh, oh, brother, where art thou? Where uh, a car hits a cow. It's a oh, yeah. brutal little moment, but it's just a CG <laughs> cow. <laughs> Thankfully. I, I'm just in awe of how 
I mean, those explosions behind them were pretty close, you know, and there were people actors that were even closer than they were and uh, just this whole environment that they're in is just amazing that they do this you know T- today i don't even know that they would go through the trouble of making this with a lot of movies would they would they even make the environment this lived in and this detailed or would they t- you know use technology to shortcut it or um i think yeah both i mean first of all i mean obviously everything in the background would be cg Right, you would just shoot it largely with big blue screens, and then put in any kind of background you wanted. You shoot it in a parking lot, but mm-hmm. in terms of the detail of the sets, like right, right around the characters, I think they would still do that part. Um, but you wouldn't get this. I mean, they literally have thousands of like Spanish uh, soldiers as extras here. Yeah. This actor. Uh, playing the drunk uh, captain is Aldo Jufri. Jufri? Um, and uh, he had a long career in uh, Italian cinema. Um, nothing else that I recognize, uh, really. Hey, you get some funny lines in, that's for sure. But he's, yeah, a great character. This is this is a really cool little battle moment, you know, I mean, because you're going to see them all flood onto this this bridge. It's tremendous. I mean, the scale of it is astounding. Yeah. This is really ambitious stuff, you know. And and I would cut it almost all of it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because well, you go ahead. You you've got your two two of your main characters here who are absolutely passive. They're watching this happen as we are, and they don't have anything invested in the war. Yep. Uh, I mean, they've they've said as much, you know. Uh, it's it, we get that wry comment that uh, Blondie makes about I've never seen so many men wasted so badly, and, and so on. But that's that's the purpose of this whole sequence. But realistically, to tell this tale. We don't need hardly any of this. Um, we could have just had the the general say, you know, some days I wish they, you know, that stupid bridge would just blow up, and then our characters could, you, you know, cut to night, and our characters sneak some some dynamite down there and blow the thing up. Skip this whole battle scene. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. Do you, do you think? <laughs> do you think Leone just? wanted to blow up a bridge and shoot a battle scene. Absolutely. Yeah. I think he would have been happy making a, uh, an actual civil war picture. Um, and this is as close as he thought he could come and get away with it. Mm hmm. Yeah. Because this seems really like, uh, I mean, we, we literally have two of our characters here just standing there watching and exchanging, you know, little comments and uh, the whole sort of, uh, I mean, this is late in the picture, too. You know, the whole sort of momentum of the story is sort of uh, taking a time out here. At least for this part of it, you know. Yeah, I think that Leone in, sort of intends for that to be the case. Because we are about to go into the third act, which is, um, it's all, it's a roller coaster ride from from that moment that we blow up the bridge, really. Uh, it's fantastic. 
Um, so in this way, I guess he 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 would have said, "Well, we're we're taking a breath. We're letting the audience take a breath." Yeah. But I honestly don't think that the shootout in the town earlier was enough excitement to warrant that. Yeah. Uh, it warrants. I mean, I think you can get the same comment in the social the social commentary about history and so on by having the characters meet the drunk general and the and the drunk general wishing that he wasn't stuck in this situation and then the and then the the two of them blow up the bridge i think you get the same result we don't actually have to see this whole battle in the we have and see the general dot or the captain die um and so on would have saved a boatload of money on the production too yes twice over yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean i mean can you imagine how much all this costs i mean uh, yeah, I mean it's tremendous. I mean you have to obviously you have to hire the actors in in the first place uh, just to fill out the scene, regardless of how you use them. But it must have taken days to actually shoot it, and and of course it took them weeks to rebuild the bridge and then shoot it again. <laughs> so you would you would think that once they blew up the bridge once, Leone would have said, okay, you know what, let's let's cut out of as much of this as possible, and we would have you and I would be talking about boy, wouldn't it be cool to have seen the battle that he was going to shoot? Right, it would be a mythic thing. Because yeah. it, it does look great. It, there's no doubt about it. It's great cinematography, but it's not... Uh, it, it doesn't do anything for the story, really. There, There's a, a rewrite of the movie I have in my head where you... you or, or a re-edit, a recut of the movie where you actually start the film with this battle scene or, or with a battle scene like this. And sort of, but that's more of a contemporary style. Like you start with an action beat, and you immediately get the setting of we're in the Civil War in this area of the country. This is what's happening. This is the backdrop, and emerging out of that are our our trio of characters. Yes, yeah, yeah, and I think that is largely what uh, Leone is trying to do here. Yeah, he's got our characters mixed up in this, and they're gonna they're gonna come out of it out of the haze of war. That, that's a very funny little gag that is like in the middle of, I mean, they, they beat those guys up and dumped a injured soldier off of that litter. And just to put the explosives on it, so it was easier to carry. <laughs> and you know what that makes me think of oh. is, um, <clears throat> is, uh, the tin man and, uh, the scarecrow just taking the, the witches, uh, soldiers uniforms. Yes. Be- beating them up behind the rock. And then, walking in and and the lion has his tail wagging out of the uniform and he slaps it and tries to get it to stop wagging. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's uh it's the same sort of idea right it's very yeah. much in that tradition yeah absolutely yeah. a bit of farce in the middle of uh, it, it, i don't know I, I suppose meant to underscore the actual farcical nature of the of the actual battle itself this completely pointless uh, goings on yeah i mean it's it's it we we see a lot of the brutality i mean we see blood we see you know we see guys flying in the air at one point so this this idea of blowing up a bridge we've seen in movies before uh yeah there are a couple of uh world war 2 movies all about blowing up bridges and yeah. dams and whatnot right uh, a bridge on the river kwai and the dam busters and uh oh well, well i guess it was later that they did uh, like Force 10 from Navarone? Guns mm-hmm. of Navarone before that? Yeah, I like Guns of Navarone a lot. 
I guess this happens a lot, right? You have to you have to blow up a bridge, and somebody's got to do it. Uh, if you're in a war and you don't want the enemy to cross that bridge to get to you because you're in a defensive position, then yeah, you're blowing up a lot of bridges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole push to Berlin at the end of World War II was all about can we get to the bridges before the Germans blow them up in their retreat. Mm. And it was uh, absolute breakneck. Uh, well, breakneck at 35 miles an hour in a tank. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> a breakneck push. We missed, by the way, uh, another moment when uh, Blondie gave a bottle to uh, the captain there. Right. Um, a recurring motif. Yeah, we're focusing on another another officer here who is uh, dying, right? Uh we had gangrene man, and now we have this one. Well, even the colonel, or the, the who was it, the general Silby earlier, right? We we thought he was going to die. He looks dead. Yeah, right. Another recurring motif. Mm-hmm. The fish rots from the head. I suppose is the the theme there. I guess so. Yeah, and these and these two here with their teamwork. I mean, the only time they can team up on something is to, uh, is to destroy something. <laughs> <laughs> to, yes. <laughs> to de- they, they destroy things or, or kill people who are in their way. <laughs> you're you're right. Yeah. Since, since that bath uh, scene in the, uh, in the town earlier, um, these two who really have absolutely become a team. And we're seeing I mean, it play out. It's an expression, right? We're building bridges here, people, and well, they're they're, they're tearing down bridges. Yeah, you know, it's pretty pretty funny. Um, one problem that I have with this sequence is that uh, these two companies of soldiers uh, are stuck <clears throat> across this river uh, because they need this bridge, and they can't they can't stop each other from taking the bridge, um, or they can't take the bridge from each other, and yet. Tuco and Tuco's not a very tall man, and yet he's able to wade across the river <laughs> up to his sure. waist or, or slightly higher, his chest, I suppose. Um, it seems like an entire army could do that pretty easily. Certainly. If a man can do it, a horse can do it, too. So I'm not sure how necessary the bridge really is to, uh, <laughs> to the armies, really, because it's not like they need to get jeeps and tanks across there they're they just have horses and wagons right right but this is the moment where where blondie reveals the name of arch stanton which is which is a misdirect right because that name is significant but it's not the name on the actual gravestone yeah he's not quite ready to trust uh tuco exactly despite their newfound friendship and partnership Man, that's it's a, like a, that's a heck of an yeah. explosion. Yeah, that's the, you can see pieces coming directly at them. I mean, uh, yeah. rocks and stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and they weren't expecting that entirely. So there's pieces of the of the wooden bridge, and yeah, they could have been injured. Uh, and the captain sees it destroyed <laughs> as his last moments fade. It's its own. It's its own little short film here about you could you know about will they or won't they with the bridge. And... Yes. 
Boy, that was a big explosion because that bridge wasn't small, you know. So it's almost 25 minutes uh, between the time that they get captured and the time that they actually uh, cross the bridge or cross the river. Wow. Wow. This is an interesting echo of the first film in that uh, there's a moment in the, the first the, the Fistful of Dollars where um, they're in a graveyard and uh, – wait a minute. No, there's a uh, – uh, what is it? Um, oh, I'm forgetting the, the exact setup. But the bad guy ends up opening fire with a machine gun on some soldiers and uh, uh, it's a it's a – like, like a Gatling gun. And uh, it's a, uh, I think, kind of an interesting um, parallel that uh, that movie dips into the, it's not a war that's going on because they're Mexican soldiers or whatever, but uh, uh, it dips into that uh, that aspect of the our characters being outdone in their brutality by the military. Right. It's pretty hilarious how um, how in stride, uh, particularly the Eastwood character, but both of them, how in stride they take everything. I mean, at this point in the picture, they've been taken prisoner, they've been tortured, yeah. they've, I mean, they've been, uh, I mean, you name it, right? And they still just they dust themselves off. They keep right on walking. Oh, we're getting that gold. Let's go. And. Uh, obviously, Tuco goes through the biggest. Uh, he, he takes the brunt of, of most of that uh, uh, injury, uh, mm-hmm. but you're right. I mean, even Eastwood's character suffers quite a bit here, and he he takes it very stoically. And there are very small moments where he's clearly emotionally affected by what has happened, what he's seen happen, or has happened to him, happened to Tuco, and happened to the to the captain there. Uh, and also, in a moment, what, what happens to a soldier that he finds. And that serves, I think it serves perfectly well to uh, give us that character's emotional ups and downs. He, he just doesn't go as far as most characters do. Mm-hmm. In a way, these two have become a single character, and we and we get Tuco's uh, roller coaster of emotions... Um, as a substitute for uh, for blondies, yeah, yeah. This is also coming up the the moment that he really becomes the man with no name from the earlier films as well. I think Steve, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, just another destroyed building. I'm, I was going to point out. Mm-hmm. I think Steve McQueen could have played Blondie. Yeah, I think he would have worked out uh, just fine. But I like Steve McQueen a lot. I think Steve McQueen I, I, could have yeah. played Dirty Harry too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, 
I think Steve McQueen is, is kind of a little bit more talented than some people think he is. <laughs> yeah, he is. But unfortunately, the the problem, of course, is that and well, not only did he not live long enough, but uh, uh, he didn't get the roles that Clint Eastwood got. Um, mm-hmm. I think that uh, Clint Eastwood lucked into some really good roles here in this part of his life, and if Steve McQueen had had those roles, uh, uh, he would have been bigger in our uh, estimation. But as it is, um, I don't know. I like Steve McQueen's movies, but I don't love them. I don't. I can't think of a single one that I could, you know, that that I would put on the top shelf of my collection. Yeah, I mean, he was typecast in a lot of movies, and he was sort of resigned himself to being typecast for a while, and um, didn't. I, I don't think he really tried to do. Uh, I, I, Steve McQueen was not very, a very good um, decision maker in terms of he didn't like the idea of vying for certain roles, and you know, putting himself. You know, he sort of a lazy dude, the biography I read of him, you know, <laughs> kind of a lazy guy. Uh, a complicated man, to be sure. Um, mm-hmm. I know that he grew up in a, uh, an orphanage and uh, he, he required um, uh, clothing and stuff, like boxes of blue jeans and stuff like that in his contracts. And then he would take those to to the orphanage where he grew up and he would spend time with the boys on the weekends. Yeah. Um. But obviously, also uh, you know, a difficult uh, man, and 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 in his uh, romances and and other relationships. Mm-hmm. Now, are these are these functioning canons? Is that what we're seeing? I mean, th- th- those are, that's obviously something else, uh, something they planted in the ground to blow up. But uh, well, I think he fired a second cannon there. I think that's what that was supposed to be. But is it a real cannon that he's firing? Uh, do they make? Do they have a way of making it look like it's firing? Uh, oh, oh yeah, they were probably firing blanks. Yeah, but yeah, I'm sure they're those were real cannons. Yeah, no, the, it looked it looked real. The the question is, why in the world would a retreating army leave its artillery behind? That's ridiculous. Oh, I see. Yes, that that's very valuable. Those field pieces. Well, you you certainly need your cannons. This is a this is a great shot. It's incredible. This whole setup, that stray dog, dog running through there, yeah. yeah, that becomes a motif as well. We uh, we didn't talk about it, but he's there's a stray dog at the beginning of the film, and and I think uh-huh. one in the middle somewhere. Uh, of course, underscoring the fact that Tuco is himself, and in fact, really maybe all three of our characters basically are stray dogs. Yeah, um, it's something that he borrowed from Kurosawa in, in uh, uh, from Yojimbo. The, the um the what makes this really moving is that a, a large parts of this cemetery is makeshift you know the, these aren't formal headstones these are make it's not like Flanders Field where there's you know or or Arlington National Cemetery where there's proper headstones a lot of these aren't proper headstones they're they're just makeshift headstones yeah I think the whole thing is fake uh, let's say that I think uh, Leone had the uh, those military guys that he rented um all dig all these uh, fake graves, mm. but you're right. It's, it clearly is meant to look like a regular cemetery, um, that has since been vastly expanded by the, by soldiers, um, because of the war. Yeah. 
Well, just the fact that, you know, that many people die that quickly, you don't have the chance to properly make headstones and you just, you have to do what you can do. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it gives you a sense of, again, the, the scope of the war, the scope of the environment they're in. It's crazy. I like to imagine uh, uh, just off camera, um, Blondie is doing the same thing, running with his arms out like that, like, right, <laughs> right, slightly right. effeminate, <laughs> right, 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 looking for Arch Stanton. <laughs> right. Yeah, it is. It is weird how he's running. Yeah. But this is what you'd have to do if you only knew the name and there wasn't much organization to anything. Uh, yeah, the music I, playing right now, we're not hearing it, but this, we're, these camera moves, these wheeling camera moves, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, the music, particularly when we get up to the shootout coming up, I mean, and they're just, you know, for a period of minutes, they're just looking at each other, just looking at each other and twitching. And the music is what makes that work. Because if you watch that with the sound off, as as we're going to here, I mean, you just see that the the music does everything there. The way it swells yep, at the yep. end. I mean, th- those horns come in. I mean, it's just great, you know. And then again, and Tarantino does does the same thing in a couple of his movies, you know. <laughs> These loud horns. Banana. I, I think to get that shot of uh, Wallach running, I think they literally set up a a, a rotating, a great big rotating disc, um, and he had just had to run on it and the camera was in the middle of it that must have been a fun day looks like it's about a million degrees out it does yeah it looks it looks hot that's what that's what cracks me up about the the sort of um these sorts of movies where it's supposed to be really hot out or they're in the desert and but they always wear uh you know long sleeves and uh, jackets and i guess that's to help they help. They actually help keep the sun off, maybe, and keep the dust off them. And, but it's just it, that must be make it even more hot, you know. Jeez, I don't know. I think in real life he would have taken his coat off by now. I have sure. To say. Yeah. <laughs> and there, and he's only wearing the coat because it's a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tuco got a new pair of boots somewhere along the line. Oh, good point. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because well, he probably took another man's boots that he killed or something, you know. Where did he get the shovel? Uh, it just must have been lying around near some of the fresher graves. Yeah, I guess you would have to have a shovel laying around a place like this. Same place he got that parka or whatever. The serape, yeah, or, or possibly poncho. I'm not sure of the difference exactly. But uh, yeah, that is, the, that is the, the final element that turns him into the the character that we knew in the first two ah, films. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. What's it called? A serape? Yes. Now a poncho, the difference is that a poncho has a hood or something or. Well, that's why, yeah, I don't know the difference. Uh, I, on the commentary, they called it a serape. I've heard it called a serape before, but uh, my understanding is a poncho is like a blanket with a hole in the middle for your head. And it seems like this has a hole in the middle for his head. Hmm. 
it's amazing that Angel Eyes gets the jump on him, don't you think? Well, because this yes. it's a wide open area. <laughs> he must have taken his spurs off. That he should have said, uh, "Yeah, I took my spurs off." But no matter what direction Angel Eyes came from, they would have. I mean, you'd think they would see him or hear him because it's just wide open. I, I like to imagine that he actually got here first. Oh, that's good. Um, that that works for me. Either I don't know. Either crossing the river in a different location away from the soldiers or else, um, you know, crossing it in the night while they were still sleeping or something like that. You're right. It's a, it's movie magic. I mean, you know, he, it's convenient for him to be there without them realizing it. Mm-hmm. I love this little bit here. I'm going to write the name on this stone. <laughs> Yeah, we don't really have a deal until you put the gun away, because otherwise you can just shoot me and look at the rock. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, he's going to Welsh on this little deal anyway. Now, Lee Van Cleef puts the, puts the pistol on his right or left side, and he crosses across his body to get it. Whereas uh, Eastwood has it on his right side, and I don't, I don't think that's significant. I just think it's, it's cool how he sort of flips it into his left side into the holster. Yeah. It's an odd aspect of the character, uh, to wear his pistol backwards like that. But, uh, yeah. it's a, just, I don't know, a matter of, uh, preference, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, well, it looked really cool when he, <laughs> when he, <laughs> he flipped. I mean, that that's reason enough in a movie. I mean, that uh, looked really cool when he, fly, you know, anytime someone flips guns like that, it looks it, in cowboy movies, it just looks great. This standoff takes about five minutes to play out all by itself. It's incredible. Yeah. I, I love this. And uh, I, I just don't see how you can love movies and not love this. <laughs> this is, I mean, and the music that, that we're not hearing here is just, it builds and builds and builds and all they're doing is looking at each other and it becomes this really, really tense, you know, and this is what, you know, we, we were talking about, this is unconventional storytelling in some ways or, uh, but, but the fact is, you know, this is, this is a, a cool story where you, it, it was all leading up to this showdown the whole time. You know, this has to happen at some point, you know, that these guys have to settle this. And they only know one way to settle this kind of thing. You know, it's fantastic because this is kind of the first, well, I mean, only time when these characters actually act, um, somewhat fairly, Mm-hmm. Um, because in in all other situations, they're happy to sneak up on one another and, and other people, and and you know shoot people spontaneously, um, uh, without any warning, and so on. And this is the only time we get this moment of okay, we're going to do this in a in a in traditional European dual fashion. That's such a good point, you know, because. Uh, Angel Eyes just could have shot them dead on sight. You know, he, he just could have shot them while they were digging the hole when he snuck up on them. He could have. Yeah, you're right, because he didn't actually know that that uh, that that wasn't the right hole. Right. Yes. 
Yeah, this is, I, I just, oh, I love this so much. Isn't this fantastic? This these shots of them. You get each one's point of view, and it, but it's the same point of view. <laughs> uh, it's it's a moment of true cinema. I mean, this is one of the things that yeah. that uh, you can't you can't that you can't actually do this in a movie today because everyone would say, well, you're just doing the shot, shot from <laughs> the end of the good, <laughs> the bad, and the ugly. I mean, you, you can't do this. You can't even do an homage to this. Tarantino did it too... in Reservoir Dogs. Uh, well, not exactly, but you're right. It, 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 you're right. That was like a three-way standoff, wasn't it? That's what he was doing. It was. It's just there was less space between them. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of them was like wounded on the ground and yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. But nobody nobody could do it like this, though. I mean, this is just tremendous. And the shots of their fingers, you know? I mean, this is good. I mean, it, it, there's an intimacy to that. I don't know if this makes sense. There's an intimacy to this that's just incredible. And and like I say, yeah, uh, he's willing to go very, very tight on these faces. And yet he's also willing to, to pull back and make them tiny in the frame and show us mm-hmm. the whole uh, the whole uh, landscape. That's the only time we see that Sentenza uh, there. We, I, don't, I forget where we learned his name actually, but Angel Eyes' his real name is Sentenza. But we see um, that he has a uh, 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 he's actually a cripple himself physically. He, he's lost a finger, mm-hmm. and Lee Van Cleef uh, did not have the missing fingertip. That's actually a different actor. Oh, really? So we're actually he's actually clearly making a, a point of making this character a physical cripple and then you wonder how how would someone lose a fingertip like that in a in a machinery and was it shot off in a torture type situation what you know there are all kinds of possibilities right yeah exactly it deepens the character just in that little aspect of him yeah I love the way they they do that cut, that series of cuts there, where you don't know who's shot at first, or you don't know who's been shot until they pull back, you know, but you know it had to be one of them, yeah. The fact that Van Cleef is the only one that dies is sort of, um, you know, there's a version of this story that you can tell where Van Cleef kills them both and makes off with the dough. (laughs) kills the good guy i i think that yes i think that by this time in in cinema in the western uh and given what we've seen earlier in the film i think an audience at the at the time in 1966 watching this in the theater really would have wondered holy cow i don't i don't know what's going to happen the bad guy Uh really could go away with this um he could he could kill blondie and still split the money with Tuco or I, I don't know what will happen. Right. Here's again, the, the two kinds of people. Yep. Another, <laughs> yep. Two kinds of people. Uh, but now there are two people in the world. They're just <laughs> finally accurate. Guys. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Finally. <laughs> and they did give, you know, they did give Angel Eyes a good death scene. You know, that I mean, that was a cool death scene. He goes into the grave, the hat goes in, you know. Yeah, yeah Blondie's not uh, content with 
just killing him. He's got to shoot him into the grave yeah. and then shoot his hat and his gun into the grave with him. Yeah. Oh, he's been shooting hats this That's whole right. movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is fantastic, you know. Now, when I think of this movie, I when I remember it, because I just rewatched it again a couple times this week, you know, when I when I think of this movie, I always think of the ending being the shootout. And then it just sort of ends right after that. But really, we get this whole last double cross. Yeah, there's a good 10 minutes of uh, of uh, denouement here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. after the climax. And the movie kind of ends with an act of mercy, a perverted, uh, you know, act of mercy, <laughs> you know, a very, very strange act of mercy. But he, he could have he could have killed him and uh, or taken all the money. You know, they, he had options uh, and we know they're all greedy. Yeah. And I think that's the that's the point of labeling him the good at the end there. Yeah. Because yeah. Of- yeah. That he he at least stays true to his word, even though he's kind of a bastard about it at the end. Right, right. He he's never gonna be uh, he's never gonna be a sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just a great shot with the the noose. I mean, because because it sneaks up on the audience. You know, they're they're not just shooting him through a noose. I mean, it, it sort of sne- it sneaks up on the character at the same time. It sneaks up. On it's him. funny because it's fitting for the film noir aspect. Um, and like at the end of uh, Maltese Falcon, for example, um, uh, Sam Spade calls the cops on the, the, the Motley crew of characters and, and he sends the woman he's, uh, he claims at least to, to have fallen in love with, uh, what's her, I forget her name, I, Ida or, or, um, uh, no, Bridget O'Shaughnessy, uh, sends her off, uh, to prison. And he says, uh, you know, uh, I'll be waiting for you, Angel. Um, it, it's a it's a similar act of uh, cruelty where he could have lied his way out of it. This is almost an inversion of that, where instead of sending the, the bad guy or the bad girl who is your friend, he's become your friend, but, but you're sending him off to jail anyway. Um, he, he sets up a pseudo-execution... For him, so he he gets pseudo justice, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. And once again, Tuco with his head in in the noose is you know the fact that that character is so used to being in this position is itself a kind of you know I mean he's cheated death this whole movie you know that's itself a kind of funny little just thing about him that he's constantly had his head in a noose and came away from it, walked away from that situation. Uh, Normally when your head's in a noose, you're cooked. <laughs> this is a tremendous amount of money that they've, that they've come away with, I must say. Because anything could happen here, right? I mean, he could. Blondie doesn't know that he's going to hold his balance there. You know, he could. He could. He he could uh, be hung. Yeah, I think that he's he's set up pretty precariously, 
And uh, I think that if something did go wrong and uh, and Tuco died as a result of this, I think that Blondie would feel bad. But at the same time, he would think, well, you know, I gave him a chance. And frankly, this is what he deserved. You know, he should have been hung a long time ago. Right, right. I love that he leaves the, the broken bag there. Like, that was kind of a dumb move, Tuco. So you get to, you get to keep that one. And and if you you know it, when you're watching the movie you know you you he gets so far away you almost can't see mm-hmm. him yep and, and so you don't really know what what he's doing at first it's just great you know it's just great he's doing it with, I mean there's two camera angles here basic fundamentally I mean I think they're they're cutting in on the uh, on his feet here and on the gold but I mean you see Tuco you see and then you see the man with no name getting smaller in the distance uh, where'd he go he is riding off into the distance in the way of uh, so many other cowboys you know this could be the ending and uh, right we could we could cut here to to credits and sort of leave the audience leave the audience hanging oh that would be great uh, but at the same time uh, it's marvelous to see him turn around and uh, level that rifle and and you know g- give that one last moment to Tuco. Mm-hmm. And there's a music cue here when he says "son of a yeah. bitch," and it's just it covers the word "bitch." It's just fantastic. Yeah. This is this is kind of a, a recapitulation of of the beginning of the movie where he shoots the rope. I mean, it's the same it's the same scenario. Only this time, they're they've had all these experiences. Yeah, it's and you don't you don't know if he's going to shoot Tuco or the rope. <laughs> <laughs> well, once you get to that point, you have to figure he's going to pull it off. But uh, yeah, it's terrific. And we get the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, titles again uh-huh. uh, for the characters. And I think it's it's in the order of the Italian title of the film, if I remember correctly. Oh. Well, he said at the beginning, doing something to your share might might affect my aim. You know, that might do something to my aim. And now Tuco has a, a nice big share, but his hands are tied. Um, oh no, I'm wrong. The Italian title is Il Buono, Il Bruto, and Il Cattivo, which is the good, the ugly, and the bad. Um, so it, the titles are not in the in the. That's funny. I wonder why he chose to show the faces then at the end uh, in that order. The bad. What, what what was it? The the ugly, the bad, and the good. Mm-hmm. But we get yeah, Tuco's scream that. Uh, it, it turns into the musical scream, and all of a sudden, it, all of a sudden that that musical motif suddenly makes sense. It's it's the agony of mankind. It's Tuco's pain, and all, all of yeah, that. Yeah. Well, this is a movie that when when you see this movie, you after you've seen it, you're absolutely sure that you've seen a movie. You know, you don't <laughs> you don't feel like you haven't seen something that you know. I mean, it's a very movie-ish movie. Yeah, it it is almost by itself the definition of of cinema, or at least what cinema should be. It's a small character. It's a it's a it's a story about characters, but it's written in a epic landscape with a with a the biggest kind of background you can imagine. I mean, it's literally, you know, an entire landscape here that our character is disappearing into. It's fantastic. 
Yeah. In addition to the the set dressing of the the civil war, you know, a war going on and so on. Which they don't care about. <laughs> yeah. It's in it, but it keeps intruding on their uh, on their seeking. And in a way, I think, um, as I've, we've said several times here, it's a, this is a comment on war. It's also a comment on what was going on at the time, which is the Cold War, which is I think that the, the people of Italy and 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 um, the rest of Europe, I think, felt trapped between the the superpowers. Um, and mm. unable, you know, in, in a bit, uh, um, um, helpless and, um, and in a way didn't really care about what was going on between them. They just didn't want the world to blow up. And, uh, I think it has a little bit of that sense of sensibility as well. I think so. I think so. Well, there we have it. We've talked all the way through. This uh, three-hour movie, a terrific film, one of my very favorites of all time. Um, yeah, what a great I, movie. I, I, I haven't said it yet, but I think it is a nearly perfect film. I think I class it in my my collection of nearly perfect films. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I You know, it, it's rare that a movie that long is just that easy for me to watch. And uh, I, I think it's nearly perfect, too. You can trim the fat here and there. It's tremendous in its overall effect. Yeah, I think. yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rob, I really appreciate that you did this with me. I don't know that I could have done it alone. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> um, and, and it's been a great time. Yeah, I had fun. Thank, thank you, you very much. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. See you later.